Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. What I want the people of Louisiana to know is that you're not alone on this, even after the TV cameras leave. Uh, the whole country is going to continue to s support you and help you until we get uh, folks back in their homes and lives are rebuilt. Folks, President Barack Obama yesterday speaking in Baton Rouge after meeting with several flood victims and surveying areas hit hardest by flood waters. Thirteen folks have died in the floods, more than 100 plus thousand homes damaged. Now, the government initial report from the state said some 60,000, but of course, we had General Russell Honore on. We'll have him on in just a few minutes. He said that number has now exceeded 120,000. Now, the president's visit comes as many criticized him for not visiting the area sooner, but, but the president made it clear he understands the breadth of the devastation. Uh, people's lives have been upended by this flood. Local businesses have suffered some terrible damage. Uh, families have, in some cases, lost homes. They've certainly lost possessions, priceless keepsakes. I was just speaking to a, a young woman uh, who, whose husband died shortly after the birth of her second child. and uh, She's talking about how her daughter was trying to gather all the keepsakes that she had in her bedroom uh, that reminded her of her father. And, and that gives you some sense that, that this is not just about property damage. This is about you know, people's roots. President Obama also spoke about the value of those who work on behalf of federal agencies in times of crisis and national disasters. Uh, the one thing I, I just want to repeat is uh, how proud I am of FEMA because if you think about the number of significant natural disasters that have occurred since my presidency began, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a local official anywhere in the country, uh, including those in the other party, uh, who wouldn't say that Craig Fugate and his team have been anything less than exemplary and professional. Uh, and one of the things I did when I walked through each of these homes was ask have you contacted FEMA? Have you filed? And uniformly they said that they had been in touch with FEMA, they had acted professionally, 
Some of them had already been out here for inspections. Uh, and I think that does indicate why it's important for us to, uh, to take the federal government seriously, federal workers seriously. There's a tendency sometimes for us to bash them and to think that they're these faceless bureaucrats. But when you get into trouble, you want somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, who's on the ground working with outstanding officials. Uh, and that's true whatever party. For the last several days, uh, reporter Michelle McCallum has been in Baton Rouge reporting on what is going on there. She joins us right now. Michelle, uh, you being surveying the damage, seeing what, what takes place, uh, give us a sense uh, of what uh, national uh, folks uh, have not seen or heard about Baton Rouge. Good morning, Roland. Um, it's really bad here. You go through neighborhoods, as you're going through neighborhoods here, every house has its possessions on the curb. Um, you know, 16 years of possessions, 30 years of possessions. People have to get rid of everything and clean out their house. So I've been, personally, I haven't been affected, but I've been helping my family and friends pull out carpet, insulation, a drywall, clothes, shoes, I mean, literally everything. And it's very difficult for people to see their lives on the curb. And so there's been a lot of tears, a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen. Schools are closed. And so there's just an uncertainty here. But the good news is that, you know, we're resilient people and we'll get through this. But it is devastating. Um, and so obviously you have two roles. One is a reporter and somebody who's, who's being directly impacted uh, by this. One of the things that we heard yesterday from General Honoré, I'll talk to him in just one second, uh, is that the area does not have enough hotel rooms to accommodate people who have been displaced. Uh, and so and then also some people are still having to go to work. How are people managing that having to go to work? And then you're trying to come home and also work there trying to salvage what was destroyed. Well, they're trying to rely on family and friends to, you know, put them up. And they're <laughs> trying to find rental properties. Rental properties were short were uh, shortage in supply before. And now it's even more so. And so that that's the anxiety that I'm talking about. People are staying with relatives now, but they want a more permanent place to stay when the kids start going back to school. And it's a real sense of what are we going to do? You know, how we're how we're going to live the next three months when our house is just a shell. Um, in terms of support uh, from the state, what have they provided thus far? What has FEMA provided thus far? The response has been great, really, here. And that's why residents here didn't care if the president didn't come last week because they were just glad that he was here yesterday. But the response has been immediate. FEMA, people immediately were able to register. They've seen their FEMA contractors come out. You know, they've gotten state support. They have recovery centers open for people who don't have computers at home. And so the, the response here, and that's the one good good thing also, has been great. And we really do feel like we are getting the state and federal support that we need to get through this. But it's a long, long recovery process because uh, every neighborhood has been affected. Uh, do you, for your assessment of the president's visit, do you believe that he should have come sooner or do you believe what what the what the governor said is that is uh, the president needed to wait to allow waters to recede so search and rescue could continue? I agree with the governor and most people here agree with the governor that we did need him to come. He didn't have to shorten his vacation for us. In fact, one resident said, let him stay on vacation. Let him finish his vacation. <coughs> 
beats that. But, you know, whenever the president comes, we're happy to have him. And like uh, I said before, he sent the things that we needed immediately. We saw immediate FEMA response. We saw immediate state response. So we were getting what we needed, and we knew that the president had a hand in that. The FEMA representative was here. The uh, Secretary of Homeland Security was here. So we felt his presence, even though he wasn't here physically. All right, Michelle McCallum, we really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Roland. We now want to go to retire Lieutenant General Russell Honor Ray, of course, uh, one of the ex one of our foremost experts on disaster. You might remember him for his work with Hurricane Katrina, uh, trying to uh, get that place uh, all together. Uh, General Honor Ray, uh, your assessment of the president, his visit yesterday to Baton Rouge. I think it was a great visit. He uh, came at a time when he could get out in the street and see people and see the aftermath of the clear out. Uh, if you come too early, you would not see all those possessions on the street rolling. I think that's important for our national leaders. As you know, this storm opened in a way with a lot of competition from the Olympics, and it wasn't a name storm. We wrestled with that for a bit, and it slow rolled us on about four different days. We were still rescuing people. So uh, I think the timing was just about right. I am a firm believer that we should not have presidents busy doing search and rescue. But Roland, the problem it highlights also is that we're in a different world from Katrina. Uh, you know, Twitter wasn't born during Katrina. We were just getting used to text, and Facebook was born sometime later. I'm a volunteer with the Red Cross. I'm telling you, uh, people will fire you up on social media if they feel they're not getting what they need. And I think social media has made local governments better. As opposed to being isolated and not being able to communicate, everybody can communicate now. And that holds all of us to a higher standard. And I, I think that had a lot to do also with the government getting good assessment of what was going on in different communities uh, from social media. Although we had a big letdown from AT&T. They let us down during Katrina and they let us down during this storm too. So General, um there's always a question of next steps. And so when you talk about uh, what now, president now leaves, you still uh, are having to deal with people who've been displaced. The state is still sticking to this 60,000 number. You keep saying that number is far higher. Yes. Matter of fact, the report came out yesterday. Uh, we have asked the media for help uh, in helping us sorting that out, but the Baton Rouge Area Foundation along with some uh, number crunches, uh, have validated that number as well above 110,000 homes. As well as close now to uh, more than 12,000 businesses that uh, were wet. All those businesses uh, now have their stuff on the street and they're not serving the community. So it's having a cascading effect. Over 70% of those businesses did not have insurance. So we're going to need some special uh, adjustments to the Stafford Act to get those businesses over. As it is now, Martin, a very important point for people in Washington to remember, over 40% of small businesses fail after a disaster like this. Over 40% within two years of fail as a, re a result of a natural disaster. So, and so part of that problem is that here you had a, here you had a small business, <clears throat> you were going well, or yes. you, were, you were making through now, all of a sudden, you know, uh, now you're dealing with higher costs. Now you're dealing with having to replace all this equipment. And what pe the average person doesn't realize is that your insurance won't necessarily cover 
all of those things. And so you now have folks who may not be in business. That means the people who work there are not going to have jobs. That means they now can't have money to replace their items. Absolutely. And one of the things we learned after Katrina, too, Martin, is that the government have a tendency to want to do business with big companies. And the local people don't get to participate in the recovery. So we're hoping that our state officials will try and put local people to work to clean schools. But I'm telling you, we we might be already going down the wrong path. Uh, Everybody in America should have a shot at this work, and we should do it as quick as we can. But if we do it too quick, we'll bring all of the outside resources in, and our local people who can't work at these businesses will not get a shot at these jobs. General uh, uh, Russell Honore, what do you want our audience to do? Red Cross is saying that donations are down, uh, to your point, by not naming it. Basically, folks just said that's just some water down there. Uh, we got about 30 seconds. What do you want our audience to do? That there's a lot of pain. We're the second poorest state in America. We're inside the chemical corridor. Uh, much of this area was, uh, has a large pockets of poor people. We need the American people help. We need the world's help to try and get these people back in their homes and get these small businesses open. So monetary donations now will make a difference. Thank you, Roland. General Russell Honore, we still appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Corinne Gaines, the woman in question here that was killed by police earlier this week, um, had filed a lawsuit a couple years ago against an apartment building that she lived in, claiming that she suffered from lead poisoning as a result of living there. Now, this it was still going through the courts at the time that she was killed, but based on the lawsuit, she appeared to believe that she had been poisoned, and we know lead poisoning leads to cognitive impairment, leads to potentially aggressive activity. Um, when we talk about macro problems, I mean, lead poisoning disproportionately affects African-American communities. 150 miles away from Flint, Michigan, we're seeing another shocking example of environmental injustice that may have affected generations of kids. It's happening in East Chicago, Indiana. An entire low-income housing complex is being vacated and then demolished. And an elementary school is being emptied. Its kids moved out, all because of dangerously high levels of lead and arsenic. EPA signs surround the homes in the West Calumet complex in East Chicago, warning residents do not play in the dirt or around the mulch. The city notified residents at West Calumet, nearly 700 of them children, that they should move because of the lead contamination. For decades, the land was home to a lead facility. Elevated lead levels were discovered just as the EPA cleanup was to begin. For mothers here, their main priority is making sure their kids are safe. Two of Irving's children have tested positive for lead in their blood. Two-year-old Samira Allen plays like any other toddler, but beyond the giggles is a potentially serious problem. The amount of lead in her blood, according to this letter from the Indiana Health Department, 33 micrograms per deciliter. A dangerous level would be a five, and my child's result was a 33. That's scary. This neighborhood was built back in the 70s. Generations of kids have been raised there. And only now are we learning that the soil itself, literally the ground they walk on, is dangerous. 
Joining me now is Indiana State Senator Lonnie Randolph, who is helping to lead the community efforts to address this crisis. First of all, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Reverend. I appreciate it. Now, first, what is happening in the neighborhood right now? Right now, it's pretty much a chaotic situation. You've got residents confused. Uh, they're angry. They're upset. They don't understand what's happening. Uh, they don't understand how all of a sudden, overnight, something of this nature could occur to them. They're being uprooted in terms of the community that they've known for years for a dangerous um, uh, ground situation concerning contamination that uh, they never were aware of. And in fact, they're, they're beginning to speak out about the crisis on local news. Watch this. I googled it and it said miscarriages, stillborn, vomiting, diarrhea, and I've been going through all of that. I also just lost my baby. And then the young lady across the street, she was pregnant, had a full term, and she came out, the baby came out of stillborn. Thinking about her um, potentially developing like ADD or something and causing her to fall behind in school and not keep up. It's not fair. We should have been notified. What kind of toll is this taking on residents there in the community, Senator? No, a real serious one in terms of not just health, but emotionally and mentally as well. Uh, a lot of the families throughout that community have been suffering different illnesses, like the kids going to school, not performing that the way that the parents expect them to do, in terms of kids getting colds, flus. <coughs> cancer situations, people dying, and they never knew what happened, what the problem was. And now, all of a sudden, because of this lead, the lead, lead contamination in the ground, now they're starting to realize maybe it's related to the contamination that's going on right now. And yeah, so, th th that's what I want to question, because the housing complex was built in 1972. So why are residents just learning about this now, Senator? Mm -hmm. That's a good question, and that's what, and that's the, 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 the shocking thing about this whole matter. I just discovered the, the extent of everything about three weeks ago. I got a phone call from a resident that is in West Calumet section indicating they got a letter from the local mayor indicating that they have to evacuate and relocate the property within 90 days. When was this letter sent? About three weeks ago. Well, in, in 2010... Federal investigators studied the area and issued a report that said, quoting, I'm quoting the report, breathing the air, drinking tap water or playing in soil around the USS lead site is not expected to harm people's health. Yet now they're going to demolish hundreds of homes. That's right. And, and, and that's the scary thing about this situation. There's been misinformation given to the people there, which is why so many residents are angry about what's going on, because they were never being forthfront in terms of telling them truthfully what's going on in the neighborhood. Now, all of a sudden, they're telling them it's dangerous. It could be, have an effect on your health. It could have an effect on your kids. Kids have been sick in the past. Now, all of a sudden, they've got to uproot a location that they've known as their home for years and go to another location, and they got to do it within 90 days. That's the deadline that they gave them. And then they get a subsequent letter two weeks later, after, two or three days later after they got the notice of relocation, that they're going to come in and demolish the location. Mm -hmm. And so something's happening. Before, before anything like this develop of this drastic measure, someone had to know something before now. That's right. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to keep digging. We're going to stay on this story, State Senator. Thank you for your leadership here. State Senator Lonnie Randolph, thank you for being with me this morning. Thank you for having me. No black South African leader was safe from Basan. 
according to testimony by former CBWP scientists at Bassan's trial. Nelson Mandela was still imprisoned when Bassan's cadre of scientists plotted to poison him slowly with the heavy metal thallium to render him mentally incapable of managing the nation's anti-apartheid resistance. Shillingly, the well-connected Bassan once cooked dinner for an unsuspecting Mandela at a mutual acquaintance's dinner party. In this uh, present-day South Africa, with deep, deep, deep challenges, inequality, um, exclusion in all sorts of spaces, corporate South Africa, in the academic sphere, we sometimes need to ask ourselves, what is the genesis of uh, the, the challenges that we face in the year 2016? And there are many different views. One view that you sometimes hear is that perhaps Madiba or Madiba's ANC, particularly in the transition to democracy, sold out sold out in the name of reconciliation. Is that view compelling or is it false? Or is it somewhere in between? Is it too simplistic perhaps? Have your say right now on the number 011-883-0702 in Johannesburg and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567 and the lines already blazing. I've got Simam Kele Tlakavu uh, as one of my guests. Um, and she, of course, is a fallist, a writer, a student, an activist, and all sorts of other uh, brilliant things that we are grateful for. And David Maimela, who is a researcher at the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection. Uh, thank you so much to both of you for coming on this morning. Thank you, thank you for having us. So, I'm going to start with you. Um, my little research pack in front of me suggests that your view on Madiba and where Madiba fits in in terms of our history and the transition to democracy has, how might American politicians put it, has evolved? Definitely, it has. So um, I want to firstly contextualize uh, where this argument that Mandela is a sellout comes from, especially from fallists um, who have um, been a lot, many of the people that have driven this narrative. So I think, firstly, we say, and a lot of people say that Mandela was a sellout because of who he was before prison. Uh, Mandela was a person, to just quote uh, him on his revolutionary trial speech, who said that, you know, that we, who, we need to fight white supremacy because white supremacy um, is the fact that we are in this position. Uh, he's the same man who said that violence uh, by the African people had become inevitable um, looking at the, the apartheid government. So this was a freedom fighter. He was a militant young man who, who wanted land to be given back to black people, who wanted the nationalization of mineral resources. And when he came out of prison in, 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 the, um, in, in 1990, the first speech um, that he gave was to reiterate his message for, you know, black justice and black dignity and to undo, you know, the wrongs of the past at the hands of white supremacy. Hmm. But then when, when weeks passed, uh, when he, were, he was out of prison, he changed direction, you know. Um, his tone and, and speech and what he was saying was different to the person that we had come to know or the people that are alive back then had come to know. Um, Dale McKinley, uh, who was a professor of mine, um, or, um, a lecturer of mine in honors year, uh, wrote a paper called uh, The Making of a Myth, South Africa's Neoliberal Journey. And in, in that paper, he speaks about how, um, you know, the ANC government uh, campaigned in 1994 for the elections under 
the RDP, the Reconstruction and Development Program, um, that emphasize that there needs to be, you know, a redistribution model in South Africa for us mm. to to have some kind for black people to have some kind of dignity, and that that model changed when they won elections. That model um, became, uh, you know, that an economic model that tend to lean towards neoliberalism yeah. that 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 regressed on uh, on 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 economic models of redistribution mm. and also um to add further to that um you know in preparing for this interview i went back to some of his speeches um the Ronald Child speech of course the speech that he made when he came out of prison and the Krisani interview the last interview that Krisani um gave before he was murdered in 93. So in that interview, Chris Aini speaks about the reservations that he had about the transition. Chris Aini said, even when the, the armed struggle was abandoned, there was not enough consultation even within the movement. He's, he expressed his sadness that people who actually fought for this country physically uh, weren't even consulted about the decision to end the armed struggle. And Chris Zani's point is emphasized by a lot of people who are working in civil society groups and movements at that time, you know, women's groups, uh, youth groups, um, and people that were fighting for land. They said that, you know, this, the end of apartheid wasn't an individual, you know, journey. It wasn't a result of one individual. And now decisions were being made for masses um, that mm. affect black people's lives without enough consultation. Um, and that's, for me, I think, where the narrative mm. of Mandela selling out comes from. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. John in Santon. How do you see it, John? Um, yeah, you say this. Um I'm going to be very brief. There's a lot I could say, but, uh, you know, we've got to give the chance to other uh, uh, um, callers. First, in my view, is that Mandela either sold out or was very short-sighted in his whole assessment of the whole situation. Okay? If you look at the Freedom Charter, which was like, uh, like the Bible document of the ANC, the Freedom Charter, of course, talks about political freedom. But a big part of the Freedom Charter is actually about economic or socio-economic issues that had to be addressed. Now, to come to uh, uh, um, 1994 uh, and then not uh, pursue those socio-economic uh, desires of people that had been, that people had been fighting for such a long time was just uh, not understandable. Lastly, I just want to say you know, it's actually very, very sad. 20 years after uh, this freedom, people have to die in Marikana, you know, simply because they are trying to fight for a living wage. For me, it shows the work that was not done by Mandela and company. Mm. You okay, know, John, we're going to leave it there just in the interest of time. Kevin in Northcliffe, welcome to the show. What is your contribution? First of all, I'd like to say, I think it's absolutely disgusting that people can actually use the word sellout with Mandela. It's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, look what this man did for, the, for millions of people. Mm. He neglected his own family, he stayed in jail for 28 years. He, he came out and he, he went against his own part, a party. 
against, he had to, he had to take on the white supremacists and make them happy and mm. go against his own party. He had a mammoth task. Mm. These little issues that people are bringing up now are very, very uh, badly described as being a sellout. He negotiated the best he could. He was old. He only stood one term, and he set up a country for for Thabo Mbeki to follow, which I think he did a great job, actually. And that's why we we have a wonderful country today, fantastic country. And I don't think there's this problem between black and white because I don't see it. I've worked, I have I have a wonderful relationship with all of our black friends and my black business people, and we make money together and we're doing well. I think a lot of people are trying to bring this perception out that uh, it's not working when it is. Kevin, maybe it's working for you and your black buddies, but can you speak for millions of black people who don't feel they have a stake in the economy, they're excluded from opportunity, excluded from being able to do well at university because of fees? I mean, you call them little issues. How glib is that? Well, that's, you can't blame Mandela for that. You can't blame uh, white people for that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do unpack that laughter, Simon Keller, before I go back to Freddie. No, it's it's very interesting to me, like how white South Africans think sometimes. He's like, we live in a fantastic country. They make money with his black friends. Um, and that's a problem. We live in a South Africa that two white men own the same wealth as the bottom half of the population. We live in a country where inequality now is more than it was at the end of apartheid. And that's a, an Oxfam statistics based on our own government statistics. So for a white man to say that, that it's a fantastic country, it also speaks to how a lot of white South Africans don't understand the reality that we face, we live in. They live in their own isolated parts of Joburg or Cape Town, wherever, and really do not see the country that we live in. So it's, 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 it's funny and very sad, actually. You used to call me on my... You used to, you used to... Yeah. You used to call me on my cell phone... Mr. Christopher, what does Canadian law currently say about police access to phone or computer files? Uh, Canadian law is currently uh, uh, quite complex around these uh, areas. Uh, And part of the complexity is just that we have all kinds of uh, checks and balances uh, regarding when Canadian police uh, can access a, a digital device. Uh, For example, a Supreme Court ruling uh, late last year set out very clear, very tight guidelines for when the police uh, could search the smartphone of somebody who they've just arrested. Uh, Some examples include that the reason for the search had to be directly relevant to the reason that person was arrested. Police are not allowed to ask the person they've arrested to hand over their passcode, uh, and the search itself Uh, needs to be done in a very uh, limited way with the uh, police officer taking very detailed notes uh, because if that search was too broad, if the police were going on a fishing expedition throughout someone's entire phone, uh, then any results of that search would be uh, challengeable uh, potentially later on in court. What we're seeing here, unfortunately, with the proposal that the Canadian police chiefs came out with last week uh, seems very much to be a desire to throw away uh, many, if not all, of those uh, checks and balances 
and simply give the police uh, carte blanche uh, to go through somebody's digital device. Uh, and when you consider the sheer amount of personal information uh, that any, anyone in Canada or indeed around the world uh, carries on their laptops, on their phones, on their tablet computers, uh, I think that's why there's so much concern about what the uh, police chiefs are proposing. Well, I was going to ask you, what would be the pitfalls if police were allowed to demand digital passwords? I, I, I think it's, it's really, I mean, I, I can just think of my own laptop computer. I think I'm fairly typical. I bought it, what, three or four years ago. It's got all my emails that I would have sent and received over that time. It's got all the documents I've worked on, uh, all, all the photos I've, uh, I've taken and that others have shared with me. Uh, really, a, you could paint a really detailed picture of my private life uh, not just today, but in fact going back uh, many, many years uh, if somebody had access to that. And that's why it's, it's what the police chiefs are proposing is so worrying, it's so disproportionate. Uh, even in the situation where a, a judge gives police uh, permission to enter your home and conduct a search, uh, the warrant uh, for a, an entry into a home would need to specify what items are, are being searched for and then when the police are in, their, in your home, they need to limit their search uh, so that they're genuinely searching for what's specified on the warrant. Uh, again, uh, it seems to me that the police chiefs here want to throw away those uh, kind of traditional uh, safeguards and checks and balances uh, and simply get open access to people's digital devices. That's why I think this idea is really it's dangerous in that it undermines our basic democratic rights really here in Canada. Uh, and it's also, uh, it's really extreme. It's difficult to see this government or any government, any federal government in Canada, uh, thinking that this is the kind of idea that they should be uh, running with. One would think the Canadian Constitution would protect against uh, such unlimited searches. Absolutely. And there are a number of clauses in the uh, uh, Constitution, in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, that would, uh, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear that what the police chiefs are proposing uh, is unconstitutional. Uh, people do have a right against uh, unreasonable search and seizure. And very importantly, people here in Canada also have the right to stay silent, the right not to incriminate themselves. Uh, that's set out very clearly in Section 13 of the Charter and in part of Section 11 as well. And when you, th when you think about it, forcing someone to hand over their password is, for force is effectively forcing people to incriminate themselves. Uh, if you were the recipient of an order uh, ordering you to give up your password, you would then be faced with a choice between either refusing to hand over that password, in which case you would become guilty of a criminal offence, or handing over your password and effectively having to prove yourself innocent by having the police go over you know, every single thing on your laptop computer, for example. So for those reasons, I think it really is uh, unconstitutional, meaning that even if a future government passed something like this, into law here in Canada, you could easily see the Canadian courts, uh, certainly if it made it as far as the Supreme Court, uh, shooting this uh, down as uh, uh, unconstitutional. Police say they need access to phones and computers to keep up with changing technology. What do you make of that? I think the police already have a wide range of tools at their disposal. 
uh, to pursue Internet-related investigations. Uh, a good example is that if they have an Internet address uh, that they believe is associated with illegal activity, they can go to a judge, present the evidence, and get a warrant that enables them to match that Internet address uh, with a physical, uh, kind of a real-life uh, street address. Uh, so they have those tools in place. I'd also say that where we've got some catching up to do in terms of bringing our laws into line with the digital age is it's really our privacy laws, our privacy safeguards uh, that are in, in many cases woefully out of date. Uh, many of our privacy safeguards around how we communicate were designed for an era of pen and paper communication, uh, where, you know, where we were all sending letters to one another or making phone calls to one another. Uh, we still have fairly strong privacy protections over those more old-fashioned ways of communicating. But unfortunately, of course, uh, you know, most of our uh, communicating these days is done electronically uh, via the Internet, and there our safeguards are far weaker and that has created a loophole that has enabled uh, certainly the spy agencies here in Canada, but also in America and Britain, Australia, New Zealand, other, other spy agencies around the world, to essentially vacuum up huge amounts of private data about our communications uh, into uh, government databases. So I'd actually say uh, really what we should be pushing for is to update our privacy safeguards so that people have the same degree of privacy protection over their electronic communications as we've always enjoyed over more traditional forms of communication. Canada. We should move to Canada. Hopefully you have been hearing about the story of a 22-year-old man who was fatally shot and killed in a district of Saskatchewan called Bigger back in the earlier part of this month. The young man's name is Colton Bushi, and uh, he was 22 years old. He was uh, shot and killed while inside of a vehicle with several um, friends. According to his family and uh, to folks who were in that car, they pulled over to a farm, these young people, uh, because they were having car trouble. When they pulled onto this property, a 54-year-old man who owns the property, Gerald Stanley, came out and confronted them. All four people in the car were unarmed. But for some reason, after an altercation, the 54-year-old Mr. Stanley shot and killed Colton Bushi. He didn't even have time to make it to the hospital. He died right there on the property. It's a very, very sad story. His family describes Bushi as a hard worker who volunteered his time for the indigenous elders in his community, cutting wood, doing yard work. He had been training uh, in firefighting, first aid, CPR, and short order cooking. His family says that Bushi wanted to be a firefighter or work in a northern camp. So the 54-year-old man who shot him, Gerald Stanley, has been charged with second-degree murder and was released on $10,000 bail. The thing about this story is that it has unleashed a torrent of racism that obviously was already there and has been there 
in Saskatchewan against Indigenous people. And online comments about this story have been rife with racist, hateful comments justifying the killing of this 22-year-old young man, expressing sympathy with Stanley, his killer. Interestingly enough, actually, and, and this is how these things go sometimes, you know, whenever, uh, whenever these incidents happen, there's a certain segment of the population that always says that we should um, reserve judgment and wait until all of the facts are in. And that's always an interesting comment to me because it always seems bizarre when and how that happens. So, for example, uh, reserving judgment in a case like this, I would think, wouldn't include helping out the family of the 22-year-old young man, Mr. Bushi, who was killed. Uh, But interestingly enough, in Saskatchewan, the community at large seemed to have more of a priority of helping out the killer, the man who pulled the trigger. And so there were simultaneous efforts I was just talking about GoFundMe last segment with uh, my guest, Ishmael Traore. Well, there was a GoFundMe set up for Gerald Stanley that raised something like $50,000 while the family of Mr. Bushi had a GoFundMe page that was at about 10000 So very interesting how people in the community felt that the priority was in helping the shooter. Of course, we could say, well, we have to wait until all the facts are in. I don't believe in that, by the way. All of you who listen to this program know that I believe that people do know the difference between right or wrong. And despite the individual facts of any case, knowing that a 22-year-old who was unarmed and inside of his car was shot and killed, to me, it seems like a time to help the family. But the community around Saskatchewan really felt like it was time to help out the the 54-year-old man, Gerald Stanley, who killed Colton Bushy. But you see, it goes on because all of these online comments that I'm telling you about that have been in the news focus on this idea that other people in Saskatchewan have this fear that indigenous people are going to come on their property and steal from them or harm them or their family members. So we can see why a story like this develops the way that it does and why there's mass sympathy for a man who shot and killed an unarmed 22-year-old. Because in his mind, this indigenous man and his friends or the larger indigenous community presents an ever-present threat to him and his property and his family. And that's why there's this outpouring when something like this happens, not to Colton Bushi's family, but to the family of the shooter. But something happened recently that I think illustrates this in a way that nothing else could. I'm going to read you a segment from a piece in the Toronto Star today. A Saskatchewan Reeve, and a Reeve is a government official, by the way, for those of you who are not familiar with that term. A Saskatchewan Reeve says the future of a councillor who posted an online comment about the shooting death of an Aboriginal man will be the topic at an upcoming meeting. A screen grab of the post from a user named Ben Coates was widely circulated after the death of Colton Bushy earlier this month. The story goes on to say uh, that the quote from the counselor in question, which, by the way, has now been taken down, this counselor said, quote, his only mistake, and he's speaking of 
Gerald Stanley, the shooter, his only mistake was leaving three witnesses. Let me help you and spell that out if you don't understand what that means. Because I remember recently when Donald Trump in the United States was talking about Second Amendment people going after Hillary Clinton, and there was this grand, ridiculous debate about what his comments meant. Well, when a man shoots somebody in their car who's unarmed and other people witness it, and then a city councilor goes online to say his only mistake was leaving three witnesses, that's very clearly suggesting to me that this city councilor who represents people in this area thinks that maybe Gerald Stanley should have shot the other unarmed people in the car so that they would not be able to testify what happened in the death of 22-year-old Colton Bushy. That's the only interpretation possible. But it's incredible, you know, the the counselor himself is not saying much right now. And officials are like, yeah, you know, we're going to have a meeting to kind of see what we should do about that. We're not really sure what to do about his comments. Well, the Canadian press got to the counselor's wife and uh, she's quoted here uh, as saying that uh, he shouldn't have said what he said and he knows that. That's what this counselor's wife said. My husband removed his comment. I wish we could just all leave it at that, unquote. But of course, we can't do that because Don Coutts also told the Canadian press that the post was written in the heat of the moment, calling for the killing of unarmed indigenous people was written in the heat of the moment as if that's an explanation. But she goes on to say that the family, her family and the counselor's family have had thousands of dollars worth of tools and gas stolen from their farm in the past. So there you have it. I'm not justifying what my husband said, but we've had all kinds of things stolen from our property in the past. And it was in the heat of the moment. So you can understand taking all those things together, why somebody might write something like that. You know, we're not living in the United States of America, friends. We always seem to go to that dodge. But I want you to think about what it means. When an elected official in this country can call for indigenous people who witnessed a killing to themselves be murdered because they were witnesses, if only there weren't three witnesses, and that that person doesn't immediately not just step down, but run the heck away and go hide somewhere, knowing that they will never, ever, ever be able to represent anybody again publicly maybe even be seen again publicly without being completely chased out of town. No, no, we can sit down and have a civilized meeting about what should happen to somebody who says something like that because we're in Canada. It's unfortunate. And, you know, I really hope that Colton Bushy's family gets justice for what's happened. It may take a very long time. But in the case of people like this who want to fan the flames with their own racism and prejudice, there's absolutely no place for them in this country I don't know what this meeting is going to be about, but this individual who said this, this counselor, Mr. Cuts, should just get the heck out of Dodge and leave everyone alone. Because this is a time for the family to be grieving and asking for answers and justice. And it's not a time for others to be throwing more prejudice into the situation. 
Just remember that these things happen in your country the next time somebody wants to talk about the United States. We received several messages and phone calls today about the mayor of Midland City posting a racial slur on her Facebook page concerning the newly elected mayor. She has denied making the post about the first female and first African-American mayor elected in Midland City. WTVY's Lisa Sicasio tried to contact Mayor Patsy Capshaw Skipper today. She joins us live in the studio now. Lisa? Devin, I called the mayor tonight and a man saying he was her spouse, Virgil Skipper, answered. Patsy actually took over the mayor's seat when he stepped down for health reasons in February. Now he says Patsy is sick and didn't want to speak to me tonight. She told other media outlets she thinks her Facebook page was hacked. WTVY received a dozen screen grabs or images of this Facebook post in which a friend of Skipper posted to her wall, asking, how's the election going? In the response in the photo being passed around, Patsy said she lost and then used a racial slur referring to the winner, Joanne Bennett Grimsley. Nigger! Midland City Councilman George Williams said he saw the post that's being shared on social media. It's ridiculous, man. Ridiculous. You know, so, and this is who is representing me? Come on. Get real. And I really don't understand her thought process, how you could say something like that in, in 2016. According to unofficial results, Grimsley was elected mayor of Midland City Tuesday with 233 votes, beating Skipper by 85 votes. Grimsley will be sworn in in November as the city's first ever woman to be mayor and the first African-American mayor of Midland City. Basically, just the people have spoken. Um, the, the town most definitely needed a change. Councilman Williams added city council members want to speak to Skipper about the post. I don't think anybody has been able to get a with her. But if she ever appear, she will be talked to. For now, Skipper is still the interim mayor. Again, we reached out to Skipper for comment. We were told by Midland City Hall that she was sick with strep throat. We left a voicemail for her and messaged her on Facebook. We were finally told by the man who answered her phone she recently had heart surgery and did not want to speak with me. Dev? Thanks a lot, Lisa. WTVY also reached out to newly elected Mayor Grimsley. She said she, she, said she will speak with us tomorrow on being the new mayor. And her feelings on this Facebook post, she was on her way to a meeting at the time that we spoke with her. We'll tell you what she has to say tomorrow. Deaf, white folks got a bump on the cross beneath their breath. I didn't say it. But they'll say it out loud again when they get with their close associates and friends. You know, sneak it in with their friends at the job, happy hour at the bar while the song is in their car. The cell phone video of a bloody fight between two Gresham Middle School students didn't tell the whole story. One mother I tracked down tells me her daughter had a front row seat to this fight on bus 111 and caught it all on her cell phone. 
Her daughter claims this sixth grade boy you see here getting punched in the face had been bullying the attacker for weeks. It's been an ongoing thing with him bullying the aggressor. The mom asked us to hide her identity in an effort to protect her child. Her daughter says there's more to the story than meets the eye. She adds that there was a history between the two boys and that young man you see being beaten had been tormenting his busmate since the beginning of the school year. The mom says the aggressor eventually hit a breaking point when his classmate went too far. The other boy had apparently used a racial slur towards him and started talking about his dad that had passed away at some point. She told me the boys did not receive equal punishment. The boy that started this fight, he was not punished in any shape, form, or fashion. Uh, the other boy. Uh, is on, I think, a 45-day uh, alternative school suspension. I don't think that that's fair. The driver of bus 111 didn't think his punishment was fair either. He was fired and has been put on a list of drivers that cannot drive for the district. What did I do wrong? I did everything I could do according to Knox County rules. You're not, you're not to intervene. You can't leave your seat. On the bus. Vic Upchurch claims he repeatedly asked the school's eighth grade principal, Glenn Price, to put an aid on his bus for security. He says the request fell on deaf ears, and that only after that fight was an aid added. Knox County's got a report that I had written, and I give a statement to Gresham Middle School about this. I even went down and said, I'm not driving this unless you put somebody on this bus. Now he's the one permanently off bus 111. It's, it's going to be kind of tough. To survive now. And Donovan, you also found out that the principal of Gresham actually saw the video of the fight. Yes, the mother I spoke with told me the principal saw the video and then made a couple of the students delete it from their cell phones. All right, Donovan, thanks a lot. We do appreciate it. Good job bringing that story to us. We know you'll stay on top of it for us as well. They give niggas time like it's lunch down there. <laughs> you go down there looking for justice. That's what you find. Just us. Some mistakes, of course, are bigger than others, like the ones that get you sent to prison. And that's where we're headed next. I want to talk about prison currency. For decades, it was always cigarettes, but now it's something else, ramen. Yep, it turns out that noodles can open doors behind bars. Inmates also view ramen as the perfect food. That's a word from Boz Dreisinger. She's the author of Incarceration Nations, A Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World. Ramen is one of those ubiquitous foods that has basic nutritional content. It's cheap. It's easy. It's available. A lot can be done with it. It's a very malleable food, so it can be uh, turned into, it, it can be at the base of many recipes and turned into a lot of other kinds of food. And in the ramen trade in correctional facilities, uh, are there specialties like hot and spicy ramen or certain brands uh, being sought after more than Others, like the Korean ramen is better than the Japanese ramen, or is it not even that specific? Uh, I don't think it's that specific. It's, it also becomes a question of what happens to be, uh, what commodity is available in a particular commissary. I mean, it's, uh, you know, choice, choice is not usually on the agenda when it comes to prison and foods. Right. And what about other prisons around the world? I mean, what is uh, the equivalent of ramen currency in other places that you found? There are actually striking similarities in prison currencies. For, for my book, I visited nine countries and learned a little bit about the commodities there. Cigarettes, of course, is the big one. And that depends on whether a particular country allows for smoking in its prisons or not. 
But for the most part, we're talking about basic necessities like food. We're talking about space in the Ugandan prison I was at, which was dramatically overcrowded at almost a 300 percent overcrowding rate. Having a space to sleep was a commodity mm. that, that was traded, which is, a, of course, a, a glaring tragedy. Yeah, of course. Uh, what, what commodity surprised you and where did you find it? Space certainly surprised me as a commodity uh, in South Africa. Airtime, phones, smuggled phones are a great commodity in any prison context. Um, but how you make calls, you know, you need airtime. And so South Africa is certainly airtime as a big commodity. Are some countries' correctional systems more open than others to, to trade? Actually, some may let inmates bring stuff in that might count as currency. Well, I think it's um, that they, they're kind of informally open to trade. In other words, they're, they're letting the system sort of run itself. And Latin American prisons, particularly Mexico, Venezuela, are, are notorious for that, where there is a, um, an ecosystem that the guards will essentially just leave alone. And be, it's, it's even bigger than looking the other way. They're just sort of encouraging you, you handle this, you deal with this. Gang-run prisons, certainly in South Africa, where I was in Polesmore Prison, that's a notoriously gang-run prison. Prison. All of those kinds of prison scenarios are ones in which people are going to trade freely and the prison will look the other way. I've been in other prisons in, in Australia, for instance, somewhat more um, you know, experimental prisons where people are given kind of credit cards and it's deeper than a commissary. They're actually given kind of a real currency to work with and, and to pr- which is meant to promote independence. So it's actually connected to the philosophy of the prison, which is we want to make this as close to real life as possible. And in real life, you go to the supermarket and you purchase things and, and you prepare your meals and so on and so forth. So they're very encouraging of a market like that because it approximates real life. Boz Dreisinger, the author of Incarceration Nations. Thanks very much for your time and explaining this to us. Sure, thank you. Growing up the son of a, of a huge plantation owner in Mississippi puts a white man in contact with a whole lot of black faces. I spent my whole life here, right here in Candleland, surrounded by black faces. Seeing them every day, day in, day out, I I only had one question. Why don't they kill us? Welcome back to The Takeaway. It's Todd Zwillick with you today. 185 years ago, on August 21st, the most violent slave rebellion in the history of the South unfolded over a 48-hour period in Southampton County in Virginia. Led by Nat Turner, the rebellion, which was also known as the Southampton Insurrection, left more than 65 whites dead. And in the aftermath, the state executed 56 people and close to 200 African Americans were killed by white militias and mobs. Turner himself was captured two months later and he was sentenced to death. His confession, which was given to his attorney, Thomas Riffin Gray, was later put into writing and published as the famous Confessions of Nat Turner, the leader of the late insurrection in Southampton, Virginia. In 1967, author William Styron drew both critical acclaim and outcry for his novel of the same name. There's a movie coming out this fall that's already drawn a lot of attention. It's a new interpretation of Nat Turner's history. It's Birth of a Nation. Let the high praise of God be on the mouths of the saints and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the demonic nations and punishments on those peoples. To bind their 
kings with chains. Dishonor, have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to him a new song. Kenneth S. Greenberg is Distinguished Professor of History at Suffolk University in Boston. He's written extensively and co-produced a documentary about Nat Turner. And Greenberg has edited the forthcoming second edition of the original Confessions of Nat Turner, which he says is American history's only direct account from a slave rebel. Everybody agrees, everyone who's a scholar who's been through the sources, that the voice in the Confessions of Nat Turner is largely the voice of Nat Turner with some additions from Thomas R. Gray. That makes it an almost unique document because we have no uh, direct uh, voices from enslaved people who were rebels other than this document from Nat Turner. And that's worth pointing out that of any other slave insurrection aside from this famous one in 1831, and there were many, um, records of them and records of the people who mounted them simply didn't survive. Correct. And actually, uh, in the ca- there are many documents related to the Nat Turner rebellion But almost always, those are African-American voices get filtered through white voices. The Confessions is filtered, but having looked at it really carefully, lots of people agree now that it's largely the voice uh, of Nat Turner. Did he have an appreciation when he was giving these statements, these interviews to his white lawyer at the time that this was the way to get his story out to the world because he knew it had to be through a white conduit? He didn't have to speak to anybody. He was in his jail cell. He gave this confession after he was captured. He could have easily said, I'm not talking. He chose to talk and he chose to create a narrative which he wanted to get out there. So it's it's an extraordinary document as a result of that. So what additional scholarship do we have now going into the release of the second edition of the Confessions of Nat Turner that we didn't have before, not only through the original book, but then also the famous Pulitzer Prize winning novel uh, by William Styron, which was uh, written in the 60s? I think scholarship and writing about Nat Turner goes through cycles. Depending upon the current state of race relations in American society, there's a renewed interest in Nat Turner when things get tense again, when it comes to consciousness again in a big way. And that's what happened in the case of the 60s in William Styron's novel. Uh, That led to a clash between Styron's vision and many black writers and white writers who said that this was essentially a racist vision. But in terms of scholarship from historians, there's always been just the factual information, which, believe it or not, is hard to recover uh, from 1831. So the actual facts of the insurrection, how the conspiracy was mounted, how it was executed, etc.? Those kinds of facts, but even facts more basic than that, you know, many people who have looked at this said, well, if you read any history book and you pick up and you try to find out a figure like how many rebels were there, how many white people were killed, there's figures, they, they're within a range, but those figures are never nailed down and the, the later scholarship actually does that. There are also cases in the aftermath of this rebellion, which again was all the way back in 1831, of basically panic riots among white people, as I understand it, is way into the Deep South, even though this brief insurrection took place in Virginia, um, white people panicking that a slave revolt was widespread and there were reprisals uh, hundreds of miles away. Yes, uh, it led to panic. The governor of Virginia thought that uh, white northern abolitionists had inspired this rebellion. Preachers had come down and their words had reached enslaved people. There were in North Carolina people who were actually arrested and tried for being part of the insurrection. 
none of that is clear whether anybody actually was part of the larger insurrection, but there was definitely a white panic. And then on the immediate scene, you know, uh, the brutality of the killing, it is bloody, extremely bloody, and the whites as they come across the farms which have been attacked are absolutely furious, and there is a furious killing of African Americans as the rebellion is is ended as well. Has it ever been clear what the precise motivations of Nat Turner's compatriots were? Did they have the sense that this rebellion could spread and could actually be successful? Or was it more desperation that their situation was so dire that even a bloody end uh, at the hands of militias or whatever authorities would descend on them was preferable to what they were experiencing? We have no absolute clarity on this. But if you consider first Nat Turner as the one who, who really gave impetus to the rebellion, he clearly had in mind that they were going to move rapidly, move from farm to farm, kill everybody on every farm, creating a sense of panic and terror in the white community. And as they moved along, they would gather black recruits. And the, the swiftness by which they moved is extraordinary. And in fact, that is what happened in the initial moments of the rebellion. But then, you know, the ability of Virginia society to mobilize troops is extraordinary. Within a day, the white community had mobilized 3,000 armed people from militias and soldiers and so forth descending on the community. Well, Kenneth S. Greenberg, you've, you've spent thousands of hours poring through the historical record of the Southampton Rebellion, the Nat Turner Rebellion. What are you still dying to know? And this might be an unfair question because the historical record is what it is. And I wonder if you had the magic ability to get one set of facts into your head, what would it be? Well, actually, you know, I, I would turn it to a different problem as my central problem because uh, I study 1831 and I know uh, Nat Turner from the original sources that we have, which are very, very difficult to read. What happens is periodically, as happened with the Styron controversy, and it looks like it's happening again with the Nate Parker film as well, is that there's a kind of a turmoil which focuses not on Nat Turner really, but on the people who are writing about Nat Turner. And I, my great fear is that may happen again, and that would be a, a sad state of affairs. Nat Turner is a great American figure. He's someone we should admire because he fought for freedom. He gave up his life for liberty. So I'd like to see that recognized. And like any hero, he has flaws, uh, but nonetheless unrecognized. And this is true for enslaved people who rebelled in general. You can go search the country for the monuments to those people. You can go to Virginia where the rebellion happened and go to the town where it happened and you will find no monument to Nat Turner. You will find a Confederate monument to the Confederate dead. That's a sad state of affairs. Kenneth S. Greenberg is Distinguished Professor of History at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. He's also editor of the forthcoming second edition of The Confessions of Nat Turner. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. In presenting a constant flow of reports about the brutality, mayhem, and deprivation caused by race discrimination, the Negro press sought not to take its readers' minds off their troubles, as one analyst pointedly put it, but precisely to keep their minds on them. On Saturday, we lost a true legend in our industry. George Edward Curry, a longtime journalist, died of a heart attack at his home in Maryland. 
at the age of 69. Many folks know George most primarily as the editor-in-chief of the award-winning Emerge magazine. Of course, a black monthly uh, magazine that, pie, that set the standard for lots of different other magazines. Many people remember uh, the covers of Clarence Thomas, Kimba Smith, and so many others. But Curry also was a friend of this show, appearing on News One Now, as well as my previous Sunday show, Washington Watch. He was a native of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, worked, of course, he was the second African-American ever hired at Sports Illustrated, then moved on to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and then went to the Chicago Tribune, where he covered the presidential campaign of the Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. while serving as a Washington correspondent. After that, he became the New York bureau chief for the Tribune and then chose to go to Emerge Magazine. In 2003, he was honored as the Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists. He then went on to work for the National Newspaper Publishers Association, known as the Black Press, Black Press, running their newswire, also writing his weekly column, appearing in more than 100 newspapers nationwide. George covered anything and everything. And we're going to pay tribute to him right now. Joining us in studio, and our panel is Hazel Trice Etting. She's the editor and publisher of the Trice Etting Newswire. She worked alongside George there at the NNPA. Also, we have Spencer Overton, president of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, as well as Lawn Victoria Burke, uh, a writer for NBC Black. Also joining us is Clarence Page, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Chicago Tribune, as well as Kimba Smith, the young woman whose story George Chronicle in Emerge magazine, who was in prison uh, for decades uh, for her involvement uh, in a drug case. She was later, of course, uh, released from federal prison. Uh, but I want to go to Hazel first. Hazel, you worked alongside George. Uh, certainly it was a shock to those of us who knew him well uh, of his passing on Saturday. Absolutely. Denise Rolock Barnes called me. Um, because it was such a, a big rumor on Saturday evening, and I, I, you know, I tried everything possible to disprove it, but it was around midnight that I got a call from um, from Maynard Eaton at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, who told me that it was in fact true, and that our George was gone. Uh, George was the quintessential journalist. He wasn't just the black journalist, but he believed in journalism, and he taught me how to be a journalist and that is the one thing that he underscored is you are always first and foremost a journalist even when it comes to the civil rights leaders you know applauding them etc no don't applaud them publicly you do your job hold them accountable write the story and be the quintessential journalist that you must be to hold not just um, black Journal, black uh, civil rights leaders accountable, but politicians across the board. Um, he was a true teacher. Uh, Law and Victoria Burke, uh, look, we, we all we ran to George covering many stories. You did uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, he was not someone who was shy about holding his tongue when he felt the black press was being dissed uh, by black organizations or black elected officials. Or the president of the United States. I mean, one of the things that George, of course, was trying to do is get an interview with uh, President Obama. And I think to nobody's surprise, uh, he's not, he wasn't able to get it because, of course, George would have gone in there and asked real questions, unlike some of the people who have interviewed the president, uh, the endless talk show hosts and Charles Barkley and Steve Harvey and all that. And so George would have gone in and asked questions about HBCUs and poverty 
And uh, George wrote uh, an article last um, January 2015 on HBCUs, and I think the title that he put on the article was, Is the President Trying to Kill HBCUs? <laughs> and so that was something, obviously, that most journalists in this country, certainly very few African-American journalists, if any, would ever write anything like that. Uh, he was not interested in being buddies with the president, or he was not interested in being in the haze of, okay, it's the first black president, so I can't say what's really going on. Uh, and in an age of celebrity journalism and jur opinion journalism, he was sort of the end of an era of hard-hitting, fact-based journalism, in, even when he was writing an opinion piece. Spencer Overton, um, look, you, you focus a lot on politics. George was a very much a political animal. Uh, having a strong voice, speaking to those issues in the black press and setting the agenda was critically important. Yeah, he was just critical for so many of us in our, our formative years here. Uh, you think about, uh, you know, black enterprise in terms of business, but Emerge was like our political magazine that was with us in a critical time in life. So, you know, Joint Center is a black think tank, Emerge is the black uh, pol political uh, magazine. He shaped a whole generation of elected officials, policymakers, journalists, journalists, scholars. He certainly shaped me. You know, I was certainly a fan, and later on I was so proud to be able to call him a friend. Obviously, you'll talk to Kimba Smith. He shaped policy. Now we're having a big sentencing debate in this country. We've already dealt a little bit with the crack cocaine disparity, but we're doing more right now. And black institutions, he was a believer in black institutions in terms of black folks trusting uh, black institutions and also the importance. Individuals come and go, mm -hmm. laws change. He believed in black institutions. Clarence Page, uh, you were a colleague of George Curry's at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, there's no doubt, uh, and I, again, I knew George very well, he was an unapologetic black man. That's right, and he was, uh, also, he, he and I were contemporaries, you know, both uh, born the same year. This is, this is quite upsetting for me. Uh, uh, our friendship goes back to the early 80s. And uh, George was a very successful reporter at the Tribune. He, he got the scoop when uh, Jesse Jackson decided to run for president. And uh, it was a big headline story. And Reverend Jackson wasn't happy about that because he wanted to announce it in his own way. But George uh, wouldn't wait. He got that scoop and, and ran with it. He had numerous stories like that. And uh, he was also our New York bureau chief, uh, which is no small job. And uh, uh, then uh, he and I uh, wound up uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, both on the panel at uh, BET, the uh, old uh, lead story program, which I always call the uh, Black Man's McLaughlin Group. <laughs> it was a, a great program. And uh, uh, George always had a great opportunity and, and took it uh, to enlighten the rest of us to what was going on. You know, that... Um, question about uh, HBCUs. I remember uh, thinking at first George was being a little sensationalistic about uh, the federal government quietly trying to kill HBCUs, but looked into it more closely, and uh, he was right. There was a, a very important story going on there, and uh, that, that's the way George was, and uh, uh, he's really going to be missed by a lot of people. Kimber Smith, America did not know about your story until it was on the cover of Emerge magazine. Yes, and um, this is actually the cover, and um, George Curry meant so much to me, and I'm, my family and I are taking it very hard just because had it not been for um, George making the decision to put my 
for lack of better word, nobody face on the cover of his magazine to talk about an issue that most black publications in 1996 did not focus on this issue of drugs and mandatory minimum sentencing and conspiracy drug laws. So I was very grateful when um, George Curry decided to highlight my case, have it be a cover story. Uh, Reginald Stewart, who wrote the article, basically had to convince him that, hey, man, there's no way that I could cut this story down. So it was the first time ever where they ran like a 21-page article highlighting my story. And so, like everyone has mentioned already, George dealt with issues that sometimes people did not want to face or deal with. And so I'm very grateful He's changed my life tremendously because of this story. I know it was because Black America jumped on board, just the Deltas, the Lynx, the National Council of Negro Women, um, a nation and a people that read this story and it moved them to want to be a part of this free Kimba Smith movement. But it wasn't about just freeing me. It was a movement about wanting to change the drug laws and everyone hoped that my case would set a precedent. And here we are today still fighting these same issues. So George was ahead of the game years ago, and I will forever be grateful to him and how he's inspired others to focus on stories that deal with real issues that had it not been for this story, I would have served my full 24 and a half year sentence. Instead, I served only six and a half years of a 24 year sentence after President Clinton granted me executive clemency. Of course, more needed uh, to have been done, but I thank George for what he, he did for my life context of white supremacy Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Saturday August 27th 2016 so I have been told uh, there are uh, several different tech issues Uh, most of it is just uh, we got brand new servers uh, for black talk radio Network uh, and some of it is just in transitioning uh, for people who listen on TuneIn. I've been giving updates about that on all the programs this week. Uh, TuneIn is not working at all because they this is out of my control. This is out of everybody at Black Talk Radio's control. This is just uh, the white people who operate the TuneIn.com website uh, and all of the stations that broadcast there. They have to switch over. Uh, to the new stream information so uh, that's just waiting for them to make that happen once it does then the content should be available there again uh, for people who listen to the archive content there or listen to the uh, live programs Uh, as soon as things are updated at TuneIn I will let you know but that's why TuneIn is not functioning for people uh, who attempted to listen there, people that emailed me. uh, I'll just continue to update about that, and as soon as uh, they make the change, uh, I will let you all know so that you you can go back to listening there. Uh, For today specifically, uh, there seems to be an issue with the live stream for people listening at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, Myself, Mr. Scotty Reed, uh, founder of the Black Talk Radio Network, have been working trying to get that Uh, corrected but uh, the live stream is not working Uh, I have uh, posted the information on Facebook I posted it on Twitter and other sites to let people know uh, so that you can just listen via phone Uh, for the people that are trying to listen live that seems to be the best option if you want to be able to listen uh, into the live content whether you want to talk or not even if you just want to listen the number is 641 715 36 
5640 and the code is 564943pound. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. One easy thing that you can do to support the program, uh, if you follow us on Twitter at Until Justice. At Until Justice, you can just retweet uh, the message uh, that I sent out. Uh, you can retweet both of the messages, in fact, with the information about the, uh, the program uh, for this evening, the compensatory call-in, uh, as well as the information with the number. Uh, so the people, uh, if they are trying to listen uh, and they have problems accessing uh, the live stream online, they can just call in and listen, listen uh, via their phone line. Uh, you can also share that post uh, at Facebook as well. It has the phone number uh, for the cows uh, so that people can call in if you think it would benefit folks to be able to access the live content. Uh, if we're able to get the get the problem corrected uh, within the next few minutes or so, I will make that announcement uh, so that people can go back to listening online if uh, that is your preferred method of accessing the content. Uh, sorry for the difficulties. Uh, state that pretty regularly if you are doing anything uh, attempting to counter racism, white supremacy, expect uh, massive opposition. Uh, it is not going to be easy. Persevere. Uh, do your best. Uh, a couple things I wanted to get to uh, before we get some of the folks who dialed in, who have a hand up, who would like to share. Uh, I do make an effort uh, for years now, have stressed the importance uh, of black journalists. I think Mr. Reed would co-sign on that. Uh, the loss this week of George Curry, just massive. I had been doing uh, kind of a a list of the just numerous, um, just really, really awesome figures that we have lost this year, black people who uh, used their time and energy their life currency in the most constructive manner that they could, trying to do things to work against racism, white supremacy, and to try to help black people solve problems. But that list has gotten very lengthy for 2016, and we are really uh, not even really three-quarters of the way uh, through the year. We have quite a bit of time left to go, and uh, we have lost a lot of folks. But uh, for Mr. George Curry, uh, he did years, decades uh, of black journalism. I think a lot of people... Um, I think a lot of people uh, are familiar with Emerge magazine. Um, he had uh, the cover. You heard Kimba Smith. She did the interview with Roland Martin at News One where she was talking about uh, Mr. Curry's efforts at getting uh, her arrest uh, and the travesty that she was facing. Uh, looking at all those decades of being in prison for some conspiracy jug charge, I think that might even be connected uh, with the decades of what has happened to black people, what they call mass incarceration. Uh, this was during uh, the time when President Clinton uh, was in the White House in the mid-1990s. Uh, but that and, and just a lot of his efforts, he did some great work talking about, uh, as you heard, Clarence Page uh, talking about the uh, war that has been waged against uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, just lots of really important 
uh, work from Mr. Curry. He influenced a ton of people. They had Jesse Jackson, in addition to Clarence Page, Kimba Smith, Roland Martin. They had lots and lots of people uh, over the past week or so who have been talking about his passing last Saturday on August 20th. Uh, huge loss. Uh, he was still relatively young, uh, in my opinion. A lot of black people, they do not get the uh, time and energy that we would get if we were in a system of justice, which should only further motivate us to be serious uh, about solving this problem, but certainly want to recognize the loss of uh, Mr. George Curry. Black journalists. Black journalists. Uh, next up, um, I posted... I'm hoping, you know, there are lots of things to talk about, so hopefully we won't get bogged down on this because we did talk about this last week. But uh, the Nate Parker situation has continued to attract a lot of attention. Uh, I was mildly surprised that they didn't really talk too much about that in the segment on Nat Turner that you did here uh, in the compensatory on the clips that we had at the beginning of the program. Uh, But in the Washington Post today, uh, I don't know what their actual physical paper looked like, but if you go to their website, uh, they have two stories. They have one story uh, about Dylan Storm Roof, uh, the white terrorist who massacred nine people uh, at Charleston AME Church last summer. And then right next to that, they have a story about Nate Parker side by side on the Washington Post today. And they have a photograph of Dylan Roof, photograph of Nate Parker. The story about Dylan Roof is chastising, admonishing individuals who are saying that they want to see Dylan Roof get the death penalty. And mind you, some of the members of the Charleston AME church uh, and family members of the people that were shot and killed in that church, the victims, not all of them said that they forgive. Some of those individuals said, Hey, this is what he did. This is what's supposed to happen. Uh, This is the law. He's supposed to get the death penalty proceed. Uh, That's the position that they took. I played some of the interviews that they did uh, this summer when they were doing the one year anniversary, but basically the, uh, in this report, they're saying that that is not justice. And anybody, if you say that you're for civil rights and equality and you want uh, you know, uh, harmony between the races, then you should not uh, be pursuing uh, or proud or happy about the death penalty for Dylan Roof. Uh, you should just take him uh, pleading guilty and getting life in prison with no possibility of parole. You should just take that and be happy. Now, that's the one story. And then, mind you, Dylan Roof, what did he say when he committed this terrorist act? He said, you all, talking about black people, you all rape our women and you're taking over our country. That's what he is reported to have said last June 17th, 2015. And then right next to that, they have Nate Parker, where even though you were acquitted, you owe us more than words. That's the title uh, of the report. I view that sort of thing, regardless of what your views are on Nate Parker, who again was acquitted. He has not been convicted of any crime. Uh, My view is that that is not a coincidence. I've said that consistently. The whites who operate these major conglomerate, multi-million dollar news sites, they are not buffoons. They are not idiots. They are most certainly not ignorant about racism. Uh, And to have that juxtaposed, at least in my brain computer, it almost seemed like, hey, have a little sympathy. You have niggers like Nate Parker running around raping white women and causing them to commit suicide, that could drive you bonkers. That could drive you to want to, you know, put down five, six, nine super predator niggers. You know, it's enough to drive you loony. Let's have a little compassion. Let's have a little empathy. We don't want to see him killed. Let's just, you know, allow him to plead guilty and serve out his time in, in prison. I could be totally crazy, but 
it was there and I have a photograph and take in case they move it or take it down. I did screenshot it. I put it on Facebook and tweeted it out so you can see both of the uh, stories, the image and how that would uh, register system of white supremacy. Journalism is super important. Uh, next up. This is just a, a request. I have been looking and I have failed. I've seen a lot of people when they've talked about the Nate Parker situation say that they read witness testimony or they read this bit of evidence from the trial. Is there anyone who has found the full transcript? Not partials. I'm not interested in if you got partial or some was the, the whole unabridged transcript of the trial has anyone located that if you can find it during this broadcast i would like to see that I, again i'm not interested in you know a partial a tidbit this is the i i found i've seen all of that i have no interest in that at all no cherry picking the full transcript that to me is very interesting because i've heard quite a few people say that they've read the transcript i haven't been able to locate the full transcript which is a little bit suspicious but moving forward uh, there was a interesting report uh, also in the Washington Post this week. Uh, it was about a black male. Uh, he is in, make sure I get the area where this took place at. Um, well, they don't have the town up, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, and hopefully I'll be able to, to get you the exact town uh, where this took place in. Uh, it's been a while since I read it. Oh, this is in Washington, Africa. right here where I am. I thought, like, I was thinking this was right here in Washington. So this is the awesome way this town responded when vandals covered a black family's home with racist graffiti. Uh, so they write, Marvin Phillips was away with his family on their first weekend campaign camping vacation when he got the call Friday morning that his home and truck had been vandalized. At first, no one wanted to tell him exactly what the graffiti said. It was uncomfortable to tell one of the only African Americans in their small town that his property had been sprayed with KKK and die nigger in huge letters across the front and side of their home and on the hood of his pickup. The interior of the car was also sprayed red. Phillips, who is 58, has seen racism in his lifetime. He knows how to shake it off like water on my duck feathers, he said. But it distressed him that he'd have to explain that kind of hatred to his 10-year-old daughter and 9-year-old son. I'm going to stop there. You can read the rest. I did post this article online. I think some moron talks consistently about metaphors. I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that Mr. Phillips did anything incorrect in using this metaphor to express his grief and anguish about the situation. He is most certainly a victim of white supremacy, and this would be a cowbell as well, but I'm reading. I'm not, I don't have access to my switchboard right now. Uh, but I do encourage people to pay attention when metaphors are employed to talk about racism, white supremacy, the metaphor again, uh, where he says, Phillips, he's known how to shake it, being racism, how to shake it off like water on my duck feathers. I just thought that is a fascinating way of describing how we manage, navigate in a system of white terrorism. We shake it off like water on our duck feathers. That being said, as I state weekly, if we could not use metaphors on this program, just the compensatory call-in, I would be super appreciative uh, if we can be direct explicit about what it is that we mean to say frequently i'm not talking about mr phillips i'm just saying in general uh frequently i think whites they do this deliberately to practice racism white supremacy in uh 
making comparisons between things that are not equivalent, sometimes are not even related. Uh, I think a lot of times victims uh, just in our state of not having clarity, being somewhat confused about racism, white supremacy, uh, we make errors or we compare things that are simply not equivalent. Uh, it would be best if we can try to be as direct, as explicit, as flagrant as possible with what it is that we are trying to articulate about racism, white supremacy, counter-racism. Thank you kindly. Uh, last thing I'll say, there are a few other uh, comments that I'll make, but I'll add those in as we go. Um, the piece about Nelson Mandela, um, if you've been listening to the cows for at least this summer, the summer of 2016, uh, Simam Kele Dlakavu, she was a guest on the program uh, back in June. I was grand to have her on the program. Uh, she is like devastatingly gorgeous uh, and super informed. I got some of the books that she recommended uh, that we get to get better, uh, better information about racism, white supremacy in South Africa. But they had like an hour long segment where she was one of the guests and they took a lot of callers about whether or not uh, Madiba, Nelson Mandela, uh, was he a sellout? And I just shook my head. And I'm so appreciative of Harriet Washington, the scholarship that she did for medical apartheid, uh, where she included that the chemical and biological warfare program in South Africa directed at black people uh, also was targeting Nelson Mandela and them conspiring to see if they could poison him while he was in greater confinement so he would be less able to participate in any sort of counter-racist offensive. Uh, and that one of the white men, uh, Bassan, who was uh, talking about planning, conspiring to poison him, that he eventually ended up preparing a meal for Madiba uh, that's the sort of thing that's in the forefront of my mind anytime that I hear anybody, whether they're on the continent or anywhere in the world, uh, whether it's a white person or a victim of racism who acts like they want to critique Nelson Mandela. Uh, he's a sellout. He's an Uncle Tom. He's, you know, whatever. Uh, and I just I have in my mind, like if I could go back in time and talk to Madiba, uh, like when he's a younger person. Right. If 1950s South Africa back and talk to him and say, all right, Madiba, you are going to spend nearly 30 years of your life in prison racist guards are going to piss on you more than once while you are in greater confinement you're going to be facing the death penalty racists are going to conspire to poison you one of the racists who conspires to poison you is going to eventually cook a meal for you and after all that once you die People will sit around and hold intellectual symposiums about whether or not you are a sellout. Mm. Mm. With that, we will get to the callers. Uh, the number again is 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. And I think Mr. Reed hooked us up uh, and corrected the stream. So if you are on the phone and you would prefer to listen to the broadcast online, I think you can do so. Uh, you can just go to Black Talk Radio Network and hit the cows page, Context of White Supremacy, and you should be able to listen to the content there. Thank you kindly for your hard work, Mr. Scotty Reed. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Feel free to participate if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, this is uh, Rob chiming in from Milwaukee. 
uh, greetings to Gus and the rest of the callers and the listeners. Um, I was uh, doing pretty good till I heard the last clip, uh, Mr. George Curry and uh, the lady, uh, Kimba. I forget her last name. Um, <clears throat> got me a little bit emotional. Um, I was actually uh, sentenced under the uh, mandatory minimum um, regarding cocaine. Um, mandatory sentence, um, the 10-year minimum. Um, I couldn't uh, receive anything less than 10 years, and I was actually sentenced to 13 years. Um, I was uh, 18 years old at the time, uh, still in high school, uh, about to graduate, and uh, <clears throat> dramatically uh, changed the course of my life. Um, mm. And, uh, yeah, okay. And uh, my... Let's start with the story in Canada uh, where the... Uh, black male was uh, shot sitting in the car. Um, his bail was uh, $10,000 for murder. Um, my bail started at $100,000, and uh, it was eventually <clears throat> reduced to $10,000 uh, for a drug. Um, and uh, I thought that what his wife chimed in with <clears throat> was pretty interesting. Um, the value of uh, property uh, over black life uh, was pretty uh, disgusting to hear that. Um, and then that leads me to uh, the lady who, I uh, forget the name of the book, but uh, she was talking about um, the ramen noodles being a currency inside of a prison. Um, I took that very uh, personally. Um, you know, being uh, in greater confinement for uh, five years of my life. Um, I'll just say uh, on the on the Raymond, Raymond Noodles pack, uh, it says partially produced with uh, genetic engineering. And um, I'll leave it at that. Um, next thing I'll touch on is... Um, the uh, the rebellion of Nat Turner. Um, that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the host, I think he actually uh, said, well, what caused the rebellion? <laughs> I mean, I thought that was uh, pretty tacky. And then they said, uh, I think 65 white people died. And then uh, it reported 200 uh, black people died, uh, 65 was executed. But the most alarming thing to me was that uh, 3,000 uh, armed people <laughs> um, took to the streets, whether that was with, you know, militia or just uh, vigilante white people. Uh, however, it was uh, just very hard to type, and I'm in my line. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I'm sure uh, there are many, many black people who have uh, the unfortunate 
uh, horrendous experience that you had, life-altering uh, with those mandatory minimums and conspiracy charges and all the war on drugs, making sure that, you know, children will be safe. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who have uh, can empathize, so I definitely appreciate you sharing. And that was another cow's guest, Baz Dreisinger. She was on the program at the end of 2015. And I, she didn't answer the question. It did come up, but I think that would be another... Uh, Anywho, uh, other folks who dialed in who have a question uh, or who have comments they would like to share, uh, you should be with us as well. Yes, sir. We got Drake from Thomas in New York today as well. Didn't forget you. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. (laughs) You know, I wish um, Trump would build a wall up in Canada, man. They're taking all the good jobs, coming down here being rappers and basketball players and stuff. You know, um, but man, that was a heartfelt um, story from my man Rob. Um, man, um, you know, those mandatory minimums. And I know people from the 90s still in jail, and um, they might have just got caught with some drugs, no bodies, nothing on them like that. Um, to touch on the clips, uh, first of all, rest in peace to uh, Mr. Curry. I remember him from BET. Um, and uh, I remember that <laughs> article about Obama trying to. Um, shut down the the um, H- HSBCUs. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to touch on um, FEMA. Um, you know, I'm sure if you ask the elected officials and citizens in Flint, they'll probably not have too many nice things to say about FEMA. Uh, and boy, uh, the response that I was able to see on TV. So this flood, as compared to Katrina, was completely different. You know, I saw white, pe- white people mostly being treated very nice on TV. Um, no white people were being shot at or anything for trying to escape the flooded areas. They were being helped. Uh, I didn't see a lot of focus on the blacks on the TV and the media, and I said that's very strange because I know for sure there's plenty of black people down there in that area. So... Um, very interesting how they um, kept to the stuff to the Olympic coverage and didn't show a, a natural disaster of that magnitude where 110,000 homes are underwater. Um, just shows you um, the focus by the white supremacy, what they want us to focus on. Um, you know, I've been researching the lead poisoning, um, lead poisoning since um, we did the show and they talked about um, Freddie Gray being a victim of lead poisoning and how that you know, led to some of the bad things that happened to him going forward in his life. And, um, you know, what I've come up with is, you know, lead poisoning has, just the lead has been a deliberate act of chemical warfare used against blacks. And um, I think it's um, just as effective a weapon as the narcotics have been in the community. Um, We don't even see the lead, you know. but I find that the lead poisoning started simultaneously with the white flight. That's what I keep coming up with. It's like as soon as the white people leave the area and black people come in there, a few later, a few years later, they're talking about lead poisoning and asbestos. So I just thought that was very interesting. Um, you know, um, my daughter, um, she plays this game on her phone, and um, she was put on punishment. So she asked us to play to do something, you know, in her game. So I'm like, you know, what game is it? So she says it's the Kardashian game. And um, she has to choose between getting married to someone she just met 
for spending a bunch of money to adopt a bean. So I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of bean is this? So I started asking questions. And um, I asked, you know, well, how does this start? You know, and she says, regardless of who you, 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 who you choose, you know, to play as your, your avatar, um, Kim Kardashian hooks you up with a black man to start the game. I thought that was very interesting because I looked this up and I see there's tens of millions of people who have well, downloaded this game and I suppose they play this every day. And um, just very interesting. I thought, um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers and the listeners. Um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, just say I, I really felt for, for Brother Rob there with that story because um, by Thomas, I know quite a few people that got caught up in the mandatory minimums as well. Some of them still in prison now. And it's just, it's just, um, it's just hor- horrific to have to go through that sort of experience. So I do feel for him. Um, I wanted to say just when you were talking about the um, situation with Madiba, um, it's, it's another prime example of post-mortem anti-blackness. It's like, you know, people wait for these incredible people to pass away, and then they just go, you know, they just go insane with the things that they say and just to um, belittle their struggle and their legacy, and I just find that to be just disgusting and tasteless and um, and just really just incredibly racist and just white supremacists to do that, but that is the way that the system functions. Um, you know, everybody either loves you after you've passed away, and these are the same people that in some cases have tried to kill you or have severely disrespected you, and um, it's just, just the tacky and trashiness of this system. Um, I wanted to say rest in peace to uh, Mr. George Curry. I remember him as well. Um, the, uh, really incredible loss, and with, like you, I do... Um, really think that it's extremely important as far as black journalism, just black people um, speaking about our experiences ourselves and telling our stories, whether we're on television or not. We can be average citizens, just as many of us as possible telling our stories, I think can have an incredible effect on the consciousness of uh, other black people. Um, Also, um, the way that the clip played in regards to the flooding in Louisiana and the fact that uh, people are claiming that FEMA responded so quickly and everything was done uh, or is being done so well. Um, The impression that I got from it was that only white people were affected by that. And I just feel like the only people who are getting um, quick service are probably the white victims of this situation. Um, And I just think that that's probably the way this is going to be presented. They're only going to really show the um, situations as they have happened to white people and much less, if anything, will be um, shown in regards to what happened to black people. I found it interesting they were talking about how nowadays you have Twitter and and back in Katrina we didn't have Twitter and things like that. So um, people were able to immediately speak about what was happening to them and the response was, uh, that was part of, I think, what facilitated the quick response too was that he, I guess, the person alluded to the fact that with these electronic mediums of uh, t- talking about what's happening to you that I guess the government would have probably been embarrassed a lot quicker, but I just don't believe that that's accurate simply because when you're looking at news clips with, you know, thousands of black people on roofs with giant signs asking for help and, and, you know, they're just being left to whatever nature tosses at them. 
it's just um, to me that just doesn't even make any sense because that alone should have been enough to get a response. But obviously it wasn't, and a lot of people passed away during that situation. So I just found that to be um, interesting. Also, uh, I saw an article earlier today that said that by 2050, there'll be uh, 10 billion people on the planet, and over half of them will be from Asia. So I found that to be very interesting as well. And I wonder um, if and where white people on that on that uh, scale of, of the number of people. Um, I think it should be a lot lower by then. So I just it'll be interesting to see what happens. And then I just found it interesting too earlier today that um, President Obama was credited with creating the world's largest protected area off the coast of uh, Hawaii. It's um, over half a billion uh, square miles of oceanic front that he's uh, made protected. And they were saying that this is, um, he wanted this to be a part of his legacy. And I find it very interesting because I think that his mother and um, her white relatives, I think did a great job of indoctrinating him into the, um, the system of white supremacy and the understanding that like Dr. Wilson says, if you're, you know, if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're black, you're back, if you're brown, stick around, if you're yellow, you're mellow. And if you're white, you're all right. Because, um, He's done absolutely nothing as a black male, um, an African-American, as they say, um, as, as far as him being African and American, quote, unquote. Um, I just find it interesting that he's done nothing to really facilitate um, helping the situation that black people are in in his entire presidency. But yet he's going out of his way to leave his legacy and his stamp on uh, both Chicago in the form of this library and um, this giant uh preserved area off the coast of Hawaii and some of the other things he's done in Hawaii. So I just find that to be very interesting as well. Again, VGQ, he's a victim of racism, so it's not a, a, a jab or not to be anti-black. I just think that that's very interesting that he's not making any real strides towards helping fight the system of white supremacy in the way it affects black people in this country. Thank you, and I'll be my line. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening um, to all the callers. Um, uh, um, this week was um, just listening to everything. Um, I, I've been trying to, every time I see or, or I hear something, I go back to my code. I, I literally hear something or read something, um, whether it's media, and then I go back to the code book. And so I just had a couple of uh, observations the first one is um with the nate parker situation um just kind of just glancing over things online and just viewing um not necessarily um how white people are reacting to it but just the i saw a lot of bickering back and forth um, between black males and um, also black females and it i highlight everything in the code book and there's just one real line of the code book that i always remember and it says non-white people by comparison with and in relation to white supremacists are most of the time in most areas of activity stupid and or silly. Most of them most of the time do not think, speak, or act seriously and effectively in a manner that helps to promote the elimination of racism and the establishment of justice. And then the next line, Mr. Fuller has below it, it says the racists are powerful, smart, and malicious. They are unjust, but they are not stupid, and they are not silly. And I think that goes directly to what Gus had just mentioned about having those two uh, distinct uh, articles next to each other in reference to Dylan Stormroof 
and the other one with uh, Nate Parker and speaking about his case and then watching the bickering back and forth um, between black males and females, specifically on different social medias and how white supremacists really do a great job of just having us talk about things when they know for a fact that they are in charge and they're the ones that are producing all of this non-constructive um, nonsense. Um, the other thing in reference to what I was talking about with the mandatory minimum, minimums, I've got a lot of friends uh, that were affected by that as well. And a lot of those brothers are coming home now and I'm looking for jobs and starting businesses. And, and I actually had one guy that was locked up and he came to the realization. He said, you know, I was sitting in, um, he was locked up in Indiana. He just said, I, I was locked up and I realized that you cannot have a billion dollar drug problem in a system of white supremacy without white people being involved. And I just really just thought that was profound. Um, and then uh, the last thing that really bothered me um, this week, but um, it was in reference to Donald Trump's comments, uh, specifically about when he was talking about um, black people and specifically our schools. And um, when he said, your schools suck, and um, I just try to, like Roz had spoke up earlier, you trying to you try to go back to what Dr. Wilson and look at things in context. And when he says your school sucks, he's basically talking about our children. And that really bothered me. Um, and the reason being is because I, I was talking to my father about this. And um, I, I attended an HBCU. My mother went to Hampton. My dad went to Howard. Um, we have decent careers in this system of white supremacy. Um, but all these underperforming schools that they're saying are underperforming, what Donald Trump says that our kids suck, many of us came from them. Um, but we don't suck as a people. And so I just think that's a further inferiorization of black, uh, more anti-blackness that they um, continue to just promote. And um, so I'm just trying to just do my best and just be observant and just trying to be as serious as possible. And I'll go ahead and mute my line. Thanks for taking my call, guys. Appreciate that. Again, uh, I encourage folks to uh, tweet the program or paste it on social media. Let other folks know uh, we are broadcasting if you think it would benefit them to hear the cows. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary you wanted to share, feel free. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I wanted to, to uh, read an article from Time Magazine uh, that a suspected white supremacist wrote. And it, the title of the article is uh, Charlize Theron's son dress, dressed up as Elsa from Frozen and the Internet Acted Racist. Now, this is a this is a, a white woman who is an actor, an actress. And she uh, she adopted an African boy, little boy, and uh, she has this little boy dressed. Uh, she she allows him to wear dresses. And uh, the article reads, Charlize Theron is getting flat after pictures of her son Jackson, his name is Jackson, surfaced on the internet in which the four-year-old boy was wearing a dress and a long blonde wig attached 
to a baseball cap, a costume of the character Elsa from Frozen. So she had this little boy, she had this African boy, who she has held hostage, um, dressed dressed like uh, the the uh, princess from Frozen. And it goes on to read, um, Darren has been very open about her son's love for princess. But not, not her son, but her captive. In an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live in 2014, she discussed how Jackson's favorite toy at the time was a Tinkerbell doll. And, uh, you know that the the writer the writer of this uh this article is a suspected white supremacist, and his name is Jesse Van Amberg. And and it, 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 even just the title of the article it says that uh, Charlize Theron's son dressed up as Elsa from Frozen, and the internet acted racist. So so he's he's implying that black people for calling her out for this uh, insanity, calling black people racist because because <laughs> black people are calling her out for letting this little little boy wear a dress. You know this and the, the pictures are very graphic. If you want to see them, if you read the article, these images are very very graphic. So. You know, she's dancing, dancing with the little boy. You know, it's uh, and and I wouldn't be surprised if uh if she had this little boy castrated. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But um, that's all I wanted to share for now. And uh, I mute my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I believe she was uh, born on the continent, uh, South African, unless I have been misinformed. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had a hand up and we haven't heard from you, uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, greetings to just the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, there was a part of the audio segment where I thank you. I can't remember the, it was some kind of politician. I think that's in Alabama where uh, the the lady, she was on Facebook or whatever the site was. And she replied to some kind of comment. And I think it said, no, the Nick one. And I, I'm starting to notice this trend. It may be a uh, racist codification where they are saying their page is being hacked because I, I, I have heard that before where only like whenever they get caught. So that's one quick way to, to try to, to get out of um, being caught for practicing racism. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out first of all. And the, it was another audio segment where I think it was another incident where the term nigger was hurled at a black person and he or she responded and ended up once again at, at the disadvantage or at a disadvantage next to the white person's punishment. 
and I, I don't think was was that was there any punishment for the well I'm assuming was that a white kid that got into the fray with the black kid or was that like at a high school Gus or I think this was a middle school. I think uh, they said that these were middle school children. So this would be like sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere in there, around 12-year-olds or so. Um, they had The video that I saw, it was blurred out because, you know, they generally try to preserve the anonymity of children. But it looked to me, from what I could see, like it would have been a white uh, child. The white child was the one that was calling the non-white child a nigger and all this stuff, other stuff. Uh, you couldn't see his face, but just from what I could see, it looked like it would have been a child that would be classified as white. That is, that is interesting because especially the other comments where the lady or the reporter was saying something about he lost his father and there are tons of jokes, uh, vicious racist jokes about uh, black people and um, the lack of fathers and whatnot or uh, dads and whatnot. And the, uh, like because I want to go back to the the Alabama politician, because I was thinking about that one politician where he had stood up and I think he came on the program and he was asking about like 99% of the white people, they would want to have their daughter to have an abortion if they got pregnant by a black person. Do you remember what the guy name was? Uh, Alvin Holmes. He uh, is a congressman. Alvin Holmes, black male. He got in lots of trouble. He did win re-election. This was last year when all this went down. But yeah, he, he was on the broadcast, I think, last spring. Uh, he was on to talk about that. So yeah, just goes to show you that it's still pretty much prevalent, not only there, but pretty much as usual all over the world. And uh, on, there was, I think, I don't know what the football player name is, he, I guess he made a comment about, well, he didn't make a comment or he didn't stand up for the, I think the, the national anthem or something. And I assumed before I read the article about it, that it was about racism and it turned out to be that it was. And it seemed like they were saying that he didn't really care about what response and the level of the response is going to be. So it's interesting that the sports are starting back up. So, especially if someone's going to be bringing up the race issue. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes during this season, if any more people will uh, speak out or, or point out the racism issue. And that's all I have for now. Thank you. For sure. That was uh, Colin Kaepernick, which was interesting because we had discussed him on the program before. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, that might be worthy of another he does have a white parent, uh, but we talked about him previously on the program because of that issue. He's one of those racially ambiguous figures and the white guests that we had on. Uh, I was asking her, do white people, the white people that she's around, do they think he is white or do they think of him as a non-white person? And she said, I suspect some of it will depend on his conduct. And if he does anything that displeases other whites then he will be tossed into the nigger pool but you know if he behaves then that might he might be able to get accepted as a white person amongst some white people uh, and I thought that this is going to be you are permanently on the nigger side if he was not already I would have to ask other white people um, if you see him uh, particularly when he has allows his hair to grow out in the beard I would say he is for sure I, I suspect the vast number of uh, individuals classified as white would say he has 
more than enough melanin to be uh, over there with the Negros. But Colin Kaepernick, that's who that was. The other uh, piece I was going to say something about really quick, the incident that happened, that was in Tennessee, Midland, Tennessee, where the white woman, uh, Patsy Skipper is her name, where she lost the race. And then it was reported that she had called the, the black female candidate that she lost to a nigger on her Facebook page, uh, that that's going to be like the new refinement where, oh, my Facebook or my Twitter or whatever the social media site is. Oh, it just got hacked. I didn't I didn't call them spear chuckers. That wasn't me. Somebody just, you know, hacked my account and just, you know, spewed all this racist. I love black people. I've you know, I've got a black five black girlfriends and eight black boyfriends and I adopted a black child and we went to Roscoe's Chicken Waffles last night. And, you know, I, I love black people. That certainly wasn't me. Uh, somebody just hacked my that's going to be the new one. More interestingly, if you see the actual photograph, uh, the screenshot of her page, so she was asked, how's the election going? And so it, it has her name, Patsy Skipper. I lost the nigga one. The person who asked this question, her response was not, oh, my Lord, that is the most racist thing ever. I can't believe that you said that. That's totally unacceptable, and you shouldn't hold an elected office. Her response is only, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That right there <laughs> speaks volume yeah. to me that you might have more than one racist uh, if you are an individual classified as white and someone calls a black person a nigger and you have nothing to say about that at all. That to me means that you also are a racist white supremacist. But they didn't say anything about uh, Belinda Thompson. That's the female who, I'm sorry, that's her only response to uh, nigger being used on social media publicly. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have uh, commentary uh, you would like to share, uh, you should be with us. Feel free. Hey, may I be heard? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Okay. Hey, what's going on, Gus and the rest of the callers? I'm a first-time caller, by the way. Um, let me see. Let's see. Uh, the Nate, not Nate Parker. I keep getting it. It's very confusing when you say that and Nate, but Nate Parker and this whole debacle about the rape thing. And I think it's pretty interesting how, um, again, I'm not surprised by how white people or suspected white supremacists are behaving in reaction to his movie by, you know, bringing up old dirty dirt from the past and, you know, throwing it at him now in efforts to kind of thwart the success or potential success of the movie. But what I'm most surprised at is that black people, namely victims of racism, are still kind of falling for the yokey doke. And, of course, this is being done under the guise of feminism, uh, anything that's anti-misogyny, things of that sort, um, having another guy kind of getting off on a rape charge. Um, for whatever reason, uh, white supremacy decided to take a break, and they, late, they let uh, Nate Parker on, off the hook on this one, uh, being, having been accused of raping a white woman. So I found that very interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, also, again, you know, I'm just surprised at how, at how black people kind of are falling for that one. And in particular, black women are really falling for that one. But, you know, again, I, you can't really blame black women, but then again, you can. Um, it's not as if rape does not exist within the context of a quote-unquote black home, um, whatever that is. But at the same time, when they do see something uh, labeled as rape or an event that uh, constitutes as rape in their minds, and a black man is the center of that, they are kind of split in half on that particular, uh, 
you know, event in terms of whether it be for or against the black man in that instance, and whether to promote or encourage or or even support uh, that particular black man, in this case, uh, his efforts or his work. Um, that is also being called the question by a lot of uh, black women who classify themselves as feminists, namely. Um, also, another thing I find quite interesting is that I, 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 I would highly encourage, rather, let me kind of go on this one. I, I would highly encourage that um, people who classify themselves as black, people who classify themselves as victims of racism, I would highly encourage them to avoid talking or commenting about racism publicly within social media, as in like within their Facebook friends or on their Facebook wall. You know, I, I find that act very tiresome. It's not as if I'm, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't do this because you're afraid of your employer seeing it or something or, you know, the white supremacist collecting all the data on you now and then when you become rich or famous, they use it against you. But really, I, I think it's important for uh, victims of racism to kind of create small groups on social media, um, whether it's a secret private group on Facebook or something, where you have a small set of people that kind of think the same way you do. That way you can, you know, sharpen whatever you know and you can, you know, speak in a compensatory fashion within that small sect. I think that's very important because when you get into the whole social media public thing and, you know, you got a bunch of friends from back from high school and people that might have not gone to college, people that did go to college, people that, that don't really believe in white supremacy even though they're black and those that do and you start saying things on Facebook and, you know, a lot of people are going to start misusing words and I find that to be very dangerous. So I think if you have a small group of people that you can share information, news articles or relating to white supremacy, which pretty much is everything. Um, if you can share that within that group and speak in compensatory fashion, speak with correctness, um, I, th I find that it will not only sharpen your thinking, but also enhance your awareness of the system and how to actually deal with it as an individual in a compensatory uh, manner. So that's all I have to say for now, but I'll definitely keep listening to your podcast, Gus. Uh, keep up the good work. I know I have to call in this time to listen to it, but again, I'm a first-time caller. Uh, thanks again for the opportunity to speak. Right on, first-time caller. Always great to hear from uh, first-time listeners. Um, I did want to say as well, uh, most of the content I have seen, regardless whether it's been black males or black females, has not been supportive of Nate Parker. Uh, I haven't seen every single item. I haven't, you know, uh, extensively uh, tracked the uh, this report, this uh, story as it has evolved, but uh, pretty much everything uh, that I have seen, I think I saw like a couple reports that were talking about some of the people that went to school with him where they were uh, standing in defense, but black males, black females, it hasn't really mattered. The the vast majority of what I have seen has, has not been supportive of Nate Parker and his film. Um, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you all have commentary, uh, you should, your line should be open. Feel free. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. So, in one of the audio clips, um, when in the Louisiana flooding, when the president was talking about it, uh, what I found the most significant about that was when he said that, um, it not only caused a lot of property damage, but it also destroyed their roots, and that just really spoke to me a lot because and I think that it um also should remind us about 
uh, what happened in Hurricane Katrina, especially with um, FEMA and the General Russell. I forgot his last name, but Honoré. Yes, Honoré. Uh, yes, uh, and yeah, and um, also when towards the end uh, when they talked about Nat Turner and how he uh, gave great liberty, I also caught that they also said that um, if you were to look in Virginia where the rebellion started, uh, you wouldn't see any statue of him, and I found that very significant as well. And that's all I wanted to share. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Other folks uh, who have commentary they would like to share if we have not heard from you? Have you heard? Yes, sir. All right. Peace to the callers, to the hosts, and to the platform. Um, I just wanted to share commentary on the Nat Turner audio segment where, you know, they was kind of giving you the voice of Nat Turner, so to say, and he was saying, like, you know, like, in the name of, not in the name of the Lord, but something about the Lord, so to say. And, you know, they was using basically uh, religion or the area of religion and people's activity to kind of fuel their uh, fight, so to say, against the enemy, um, which can be perceived as devils, so to say. And so I just, found it significant how the person was, you know, talking about it, even though he kind of gave a positive outlook on it. He kind of, you know, sounded like he glorified the fact that, you know, they only killed so many whites, like 79 whites, uh, whites white supremacists, and then, um, you know, white militias and white people got together in swift fashion to respond to this, alleged rebellion and then that just makes me think about like uh the the writ of emancipation that uh abraham lincoln wrote however people feel about it but what it says and you know in the document it's saying like you know hey uh whatever black people do from here on out to actually be free because they used to be our property and all types of stuff, and we have them in the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, they're not in rebellion against the United States. And so I definitely know why Abraham Lincoln got his head popped, and um, I definitely know why, um, you know, racism, white supremacy would uh, basically hide behind the United States of America uh, to, to keep this going. And that's what I see coming forth with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, and the whole aspect that, you know, even though it seemed heaven sent that we had a black president, we wasn't ready for it because we didn't actively get out there and demand anything. And then the eight years that went by and now we left with two racist white supremacists to pick from. So uh, in this sophisticated system of terrorism. I don't respect uh, Dylan Roof. Uh, I think that he should die. And uh, the death penalty is correct. And there's no, no doubt about it. He killed, so he should be killed. I-4 and I-242. And if the state got to do it, that's fine. Uh, and 
just racist white supremacists. I care. It's just like ice. That's all I want to say. I mean, not worse than ice. I will uh, remind folks we could watch the uh, metaphors. If that's not a met- we could watch the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Watch the metaphors. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, there are other folks that we have not heard from. Uh, if you have commentary, observations you would like to share, if we have not heard from you, uh, feel free. Uh, yes, um, Gus, this is this Scotty. Um, thank you for taking a call. Um, I am, the problems you were having with the server, we can discuss that tomorrow. I think it was on your end. I'll help you identify that. Uh, in terms of the issue with tuning I suspect racists don't want to update anything that has black, the word black in it. And that's why uh, you are not the only one who's having that issue with tuning. Uh, some of the other clients, they have not updated and it's been over seven days. So this is what I've been telling the listeners. If you use tuning, you are a customer of theirs. You email them at support at tuning.com and ask them why they have not updated the cows or any other stations that you may listen to on the Black Talk Radio Network platform. Um, I called in to comment on Colin Kaepernick's story, um, and also Cam Newton said some comments. Uh, Cam Newton plays here in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a high-profile quarterback. And I had heard that he had said something about racism that didn't go over too favorable with, with black people. And so I purposely just tried to miss that news because I think highly of that young man and I know the pressure that he's under and the racism that he has suffered uh, since before entering the NFL. And I finally heard today what he said as I was listening to um, this rapper who is on Boyce Watkins' channel sometimes, and he was talking about Colin Kaepernick, and he brought up what Cam Newton said. Now, somebody um, on our social media platform, BTR Community, has said they think Cam Newton was trying to be codified. And when they asked him about racism, he said something about America has moved past racism. Now, I know that young man knows that's not true. And I just think that, like the other person has said, he may have been trying to come be codified and not talk about racism to to these white people asking him questions. Um, But he knows that racism still exists because he went down there personally when the monster uh, Dylan Roof killed all those black people. He went down there personally because he knew one of the guys who was an athlete whose mom was killed in that. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, perhaps he just slipped up, made a mistake, whatever, feeling the pressure of racism. And he said what he said. So in terms of codification, that's VGQ. Um, he said what he said. In terms of Colin Kaepernick, I think that he said what he said. And he did not say anything that was incorrect. And I think more than anything is that it shows the hypocrisy of, of America, USA, whatever they want to call this place that we live in. Uh, in. Um, I think it shows the hypocrisy because they want to say, oh, you wouldn't have as much freedom if you live somewhere else. You, you should be thankful to be living here in this country and whatnot. Well, if he has all this freedom, why are you making a big deal? Because he, he chose to utilize that freedom 
by not standing up and participating in a mass brainwashing exercise and pledging allegiance to a flag or singing the national anthem or putting his hand over his heart. That just goes to show you the hypocrisy. You are free to do whatever you want to do as long as it's in the confines of what they want you to do. And uh, that's all I had to share on that. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for the assistance. I will send tune in an email myself and encourage folks to do that. Also send an email to get them to uh, get cracking, get those servers updated uh, pronto. Uh, I suspect what they're going to do with Colin Kaepernick, because they tend to have rules. The uh, whites who run professional sports racist suspects, they tend to have rules about that. I think anyone, if you follow loosely professional sports, you've seen this sort of thing before where a black person seems like they don't want to, because I think it was also he made those comments and it was connected to him not standing during the Pledge of Allegiance. I suspect if they don't have rules that you are supposed to stand or what you're supposed to do while it plays, it wouldn't even surprise me if they make new rules about that, uh, because I've seen that sort of thing happen before when black people uh, have said that they don't want to do it or have, you know, tried Try to uh, figure out something else to do while the national anthem is being played before whatever sporting activity. They tend to just go to policy and procedure, say, oh, according to this rule, and you signed it, and blah, 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 and if you don't do it, we're going to fine you, and all this other stuff. So that would be what I expect they're going to do with uh, Colin Kaepernick if he uh, persists in not participating in the national anthem. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from, anybody that we missed completely, hasn't been able to uh, share their thoughts? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. I don't have anything specific to, to the pinpoint, but as I was listening to all the clippings, I noticed, I just noticed the wording in every single clip, every single defense when it comes to any situation, the way they word um, things. It, it's very particular. They use special words when they're dealing with themselves, just like when they were speaking on Dylan Roof um, and the death penalty. He's not going to get the death penalty because of the way they use words. They're going to make sure we don't even push for the death penalty. Not anyone that, that's involved in the, um, in the case, anyone that's connected to it. They're going to make sure with those tricky words that they use that we don't even go for the death penalty. And then they're going to do some other tricky stuff, and um, he's going to, it's not going to go the way we think it's going to go. And then the way they set up um, the guys that birthed the nation guy, the way they set it up, um, that's too bad that he didn't go um, with the um, black guy that wanted to um, fund him because this has um, become real tricky, but I believe they would have put the information out regardless of how the movie came out. They would have still... Um, did that because that's just what they do. And then I noticed people stating that not just on the call, but just in general about his rape case and how we're not saying anything. We never do. We, we don't say, what are we going to say? I mean, not like that, but there's nothing to say. We're not connected together to say anything. We don't have an army. What are we going to say? And as soon as we do say anything against it, because they showed us with OJ, when we did say, after that verdict, we couldn't say. We're losing jobs, friends, or whatever, connections, homes. So 
we can't say we can lose our job. We can lose our everything. We can lose our lives if we say anything against what they say because they are in control over us. So I don't know what we're going to say. And then if we, um, I'll give an example. Um, Tariq Nasheed, sometimes he does, um, oh, God, a little celebrity doctor, Dr. Drew. So sometimes they'll call him on um, the uh, the program to speak. So I noticed after a few times him being on there, they've discontinued. I think the last uh, Dr. Drew show, his last show was on the 22nd of September. So he won't do any more shows. So anytime we do try to speak out, they collectively shut us down and then they distract us with some other foolishness. And then we never get back to the original agenda so nothing gets done. So I believe the reason why we don't say anything or respond or support is because we can. Because if we say, well, that was a long time ago, whichever rape case. Oh, that was such and such and he was acquitted. Oh, so you're, you're for rape? Are you a rape advocate? Are you, just, I, it, you know, but I like with Woody Allen, he was a rapist, but the first name that they call is Bill Cosby. And he wasn't even convicted of rape. So I just noticed the wording and how they set it up to go against us, set us up to go against us, and then make a mockery of us so no one else will have any empathy or compassion for us. And um, that's all I'd like to say, and I'll mute my line. Hmm. Appreciate that. Uh, I'll only get in really quick. I had a question, but just to get in really quick, uh, since you mentioned the word empathy and uh, using words to minimize uh, or prohibit empathy towards black people. There was an article in the New York Times this week about Nate Parker, and it was titled "The Limits of Empathy." <laughs> that's what it was. That's what it was talking about. But at any rate, um, I've heard people make that uh, take that position that Nate Parker that he made an error and he should have sold his film to Byron Allen. This is a black male who was bidding uh, with Fox Searchlight, and I guess whomever else was going to purchase the rights to his film uh, back earlier this year in the wintertime. Uh, and people have said, basically, if he had sold the film to Byron Allen, he could have somehow avoided all of this. To me, that just does not seem logical. Uh, if anything, uh, racists would have went extra harder uh, with this whole campaign to take the film down because then they could have got two for one. Uh, we can take Mr. Allen down and Mr. Parker down at the same time because uh, you shouldn't have raped that white woman and you should have known better than to support a rapist by buying this film. Uh, and so we can just attack both of them. That just doesn't seem logical to me that uh, him selling his film to Mr. Allen could have protected him uh, from this happening. But I could be in error. Uh, the other quick thing, last thing I'll mention about Mr. Parker's situation, I have noticed that they are not referencing his film by the correct title. They're citing it frequently as Birth of a Nation. That's not the title of the film. It is The Birth of a Nation. That is important because Birth of a Nation is the 1915 film, which interestingly climaxes with a black male rapist being killed by the Klan. But that is, maybe I'm just reading too much into that, but I have noted that more frequently originally. They were citing it correctly before all this came out. It was the birth of a nation every time. More frequently now, I'm seeing it just birth of a nation, which is not the correct title of the film. A uh, question that I had from a listener, I do not have children. However, talking to your children about racism is extremely important. We had a listener they wanted to know, because we, we even had a clip uh, this week uh, where 
a black child was being called a nigger, got into a fight. They uh, severely reprimanded the black child and didn't do very much to the white child uh, at all. Uh, we had a cow's listener and a parent. He wanted to know uh, what is the counter-racist strategy in terms of what do, your ch- what do you instruct your child to do if they are called a nigger? This might be one that's age-appropriate. Uh, if you have a child that is, uh, let's say, six as opposed to if you have a child that is 16 or 17, what you tell your daughter to do, depending on age or where they are, what have you, depending on their personality, might be very differently. So any of our listeners, if you do have children in particular, have you had that conversation with them in terms of this is what I want you to do and then some trial runs so they can practice if a white child or even if it's a white teacher, because that's happened too, if it's a white teacher, a white older person or another white classmate calls your child a nigger, what have you instructed your child to do? How are they supposed to handle that in a codified manner? Can anyone speak to that? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, it happened to both of my sons twice. Uh, 16-year-old son, let's see, three years ago. And then um, my younger son, who was 12, uh, happened to him maybe two, a year ago. Um I think the first, uh, with my 16-year-old son, I was uh, more confused. And so, basically, um, <laughs> he struggled the kid and threw him up against the wall. So, that wasn't a, uh, an appropriate response. But I think now, um, one thing that I taught him to do, he, um, he got, and I got this from Mr. Fuller, and I said, you know, what does that term mean? And um, he used that a couple times when people, um, specifically, uh, white people were using it, and literally that it ended the conversation because it forces them to answer the question. And typically, it's going to be you know a white person mistreating a black person. With the younger kids, um, I just think you have to just probably talk to them more about racism, so they know it just with their little mind, they at least have some sort of expectation of where this is coming from. But I would even say even smaller kids, if you talk to them and they have an understanding of it, ask them, what does that term mean and why are you using that with me? Um, you'd be very surprised at the responses and things of that nature. Um, so uh, obviously avoid conflict. And with teachers specifically, kids have to be more codified. I mean, my youngest son even told me, uh, driving home from school one day, my teacher, his Fifth grade teacher, she's like, I'm the darkest kid in the class, and she is racist. That's exactly what he said. Um, and I brought it to the school's attention. Obviously, nothing was done, nothing was done, but the fact that he even brought it to my attention is important because at least he's observing it. So I just try to say just be patient with the kids and talk to them as much as possible because you'll be very surprised about how kids can react and kind of just try to keep them calm and understanding that um, they are going to get in more trouble regardless of what happens in this racist society. So, Appreciate that. Um, we have any other uh, parents, if you have codified and had that conversation with your children and, you know, specific age appropriate conversation with your child. And when I say age appropriate, I just mean uh, as the male caller just shared, my suspicion is that co- that conversation would certainly change uh, if you're talking to a child at six as opposed to if you're talking to your daughter at 16. It would be a very different conversation about, you know, what you think would be the best way to deal with this. But do we have any other parents who have had this conversation with your children? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. 
Um, well, I have two. Um, uh, one's 26. Now, my 26-year-old, she kind of went, we weren't exposed to those kind of wordings, and I was young when I had her, so we were kind of calling each other, you know, nigga and all that, so that was just a common vocabulary word. Um, by the time she got to first grade, she went to the Muslim school. Um, Barakon has a um, school. So she went to one of those. And so, of course, they teach you self-love and all that stuff. So I didn't have that problem with her, per se, um, because she was able to hold her own. And that just never crossed my mind because of how we were living. But with my son, and I believe I heard him on the, um, I think he's on the line, (laughs) it was a little different. Um, because I'm raising him in a different time. So um, he never tells me if he's been um, disrespected in that manner by um, Caucasians. But since he participates, he's been participating in this program when he was nine, he's able to, he knows how to, he, he knows what to do. He's been, he's, been, he's 15, so that's six years, um, going on seven. So, he knows, he kind of knows, he kind of follows the code. So hopefully you could kind of, um, if you'd ever want to know, but hopefully he's able to just follow the code, the, um, a codified response because, um, he's kind of conditioned to knowing just like we are because he's been doing this for so long versus a lot of other children. Oh, that's too bad. So I just keep him in the program. He's been off for a month, so that's why I recognize him on the pro uh, two months. That's why I recognize him on the program. But I just make sure he follows the code. And you know, since I'm the parent, it's what I say. So this is what we're doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what you're doing. This is what we're doing. And you need to know this because this is what's going on. So when someone calls you a nigga, you know it's up to you how you. But I respond like this. So since he's listened to Neely Fuller several times, he's talked to Neely Fuller, he's talked to Dr. Wilson, he's talked to you guys, he's codified in his responses. So that's all I wanted to say. Yes, sir. This is Rob from Milwaukee. Um, I have a uh, 10-year-old son, nine-year-old daughter, and um, my children uh, don't live in a household with me those two children that live with their mom and in my attempt to have that conversation they're both their moms in unison uh told me that i was teaching them to hate whites and i mute my line thank you hmm. that is interesting did they have a uh, suggestion uh since this sort of thing does happen in terms of what they would like your daughter and son respectively to do if should they be called a nigger? Not at all. Huh. <laughs> Can I be heard? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, my son now is 21. Um, through, and as a young adult, he's a lot more codified. Um, now than he's probably ever been in his life. But he um, grew up pretty much understanding what racism was. It's something we discussed because I grew up the same way, essentially. Um, so it's something he understood. He was never called a nigger by white people. Excuse me, his biggest issue was being called nigger by black people. And my son was always viscerally opposed to being called nigger by anyone. 
So um, he always pretty much held his own. He never got into any physical altercations, but he always asserted himself um, about that, about not being called that. When he ended up in high school, which was a predominantly white school with a lot of affluent white children, um, again, he was never called nigger there. But the racism was very um, sometimes direct and indirect. You know, they would ask him to, you know, talk a certain way or um, because he was into hip-hop music and he writes and things like that. He would ask him to rap for them and things like that. And he would have to, you know, check them. And he actually always had a good a good way of dealing with it, which was basically asserting himself. And it never got to any point where it got physical or where he um, got into any trouble for it. He always did it in a very intelligent way. Um, even with teachers, when he experienced racism with teachers, and again, they never called him a nigga either. But if they uh, said things that were incorrect about black people or, um, or if they were teaching the class in a manner in which they were Europeanizing um, history to the point where they were not acknowledging African achievements, he would chime in and things like that and, and give that sort of information with proof to back up what he was discussing. So, um, yeah, he just never really had that, that sort of uh, issue. And as he's gotten older, um, he's become extremely codified just as far as how he approaches white people in general, um, how he views them. Um, and he has a good way of, um, I think, navigating those situations with white people because he has a much better understanding of who and what he's dealing with. And I'll be my line. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I, I also think uh, it's important to give your child an opportunity to practice their response uh, where you can, you know, pretend that you are a white classmate or teacher or whatever. Uh, where you can pretend and call them that just so that they can get comfortable in terms of what they are going to say. Uh, that can help them to be a bit more calm in that situation. And they've already said the lines. They've heard themselves saying the lines, how it is that you want them to respond, whatever you want them to do. I think that can be important. Uh, did anybody, certainly if anybody that we haven't heard from, if you have you know suggestions, especially if we have parents, we certainly should not have uh, black parents spectating on this one if you have had this conversation with your offspring about how to respond uh, what would be the best way you'd like to see them respond if they are called nigger by a white person uh, anyone suggest yes sir I just was going to ask also did anyone sure. encourage or suggest uh, technology using a cell phone if you have it to record uh, I'm just going to throw that out as well Thomas in New York you were going to respond um yes um you know, when I was listening to um, what Rob said, I had that conversation with my cousin yesterday who um, called me, and I started, I said something about white people, and he, um, you said that in front of your kids? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, are you teaching your kids to hate white people? I said, yes. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm I, not very nice um, with the way I speak around them by the house. But I teach my kids that um, you can never prove white people are racist. And uh, even if they call you a nigger, I was called a nigger in high school by another white boy. I threw him up against the locker. The coaches came in the room, and he said he was singing on NWA song. So, um, you know, I looked like I was the bad guy. So, um, yeah, you know, you just, you know, walk away from it if you can or ask questions on what is a nigger. But don't be offended. Um, you know, I, 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 I find that when I see things happen that are racist, uh, especially with my kids around, 
I try to, um, as soon as I see it, you know, we all start laughing because, like, look at this racist stuff. Because I don't want them to be feeling like, um, you know, this is uh, intimidated by the situation. You know, get right into the question lane. You you know, you already knew all of them were racist to start with. So um, that's how I teach my kids. Right on, right on. Uh, still haven't heard technology. Uh, if or if people don't think that that's a constructive idea, that's fine too. But anyone recommend if you have children? It seems like all the children now, by the time they're two, they have a cell phone or some sort of electronic gaz- uh, gadget that can record uh, at least audio, if not audio and video. Uh, anyone instruct your child to pull out their uh, device and begin recording? Um, I, it depends on how you record it. Um, I don't, um, recommend you flipping it around and saying, you know, it, it depends on your style of recording. I think that's wise to record it if you're just doing a, um, a casual recording. But if you're just making a, you know, walking around with your camera, just recording it like that, it just seems a little weird. And then they're in, um, defense mode. So you're not going to get what you would if they're not expecting you to record. So I think it's pretty good, especially for practice modes or whatever. If you even, because some states have it to where you can't, um, it's against a lot of record conversation. So, you know, you take it home and kind of review it and, you know, use it as a, a learning tool. That's just me. Might also be constructive to make a report uh, just because I would I think that sort of thing should be taken seriously and it can escalate. I think there have been a number of incidents. That's why I try to include every week at least one or two reports where it's something happening in a school uh, where some of the other little white children, racist children have called a black person a nigger or done something racist. Uh, or sometimes it'll be the faculty and administrators who are doing it, who are the perpetrators. Uh, but I try to include that. Uh, I think that can be important as well when you have these conversations with your children to uh, show that this is authentic, that this is not just you talking about something hypothetical, that this sort of thing happens regularly, uh, to be able to show them incidents so that they can see children that are their age, uh, where it's happened to 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 15-year-olds, whatever the age range is, to show them so they can see. And I would try and show them on a regular basis because it's at least uh, during, and it's not even during the academic year right now. The school is just starting up for a lot of places. I know here they're not even in school yet for a lot of folks. Uh, but this sort of thing happens, you know. There are at least three, four reports every week of this sort of thing. I would try to show them some of those reports uh, so that they take it seriously. And then I would also in uh, just in speaking with them that that can be a precursor. That sort of blatant verbal abuse can be a precursor to violence Uh, to take that seriously. I think it's the sort of thing that should be uh, reported. That way you can establish a record. Uh, that if it does escalate, because sometimes this sort of thing, like that situation that happened in uh, Idaho, where they were calling the black uh, mentally disabled student, they were calling him names and doing all this other stuff, and then it ended up with him being uh, anally raped. 
So, it, I mean, it can get really, really bad. So I would make a report immediately. I would take it serious. I really would not uh, downplay it or try to minimize it as, oh, they were just joking around or, you know, they listened to Nicki Minaj or Kanye West or whatever it is. And, you know, they, they have fun. They're just having a good time. They're, they're not racist. I would really emphasize that that sort of thing should be taken seriously. And I would make a report. I would even uh, encourage uh, reporting it, even though the officials at the school, they are probably going to be racist as well because there'll be more whites. But I would try to get some sort of written documentation that this happened in case these sort of things continue. That way you can establish, as they call it, a paper trail, but you can start uh, accumulating some evidence that this sort of thing has been ongoing uh, and trying to get the problem uh, resolved. And plus, you might even be able to bring in some more powerful whites uh, to get the problem remedied. But uh, I would definitely encourage uh, taking it seriously. It should not be the sort of thing that gets minimized or just thought of as a joke. It should be taken very, very seriously, regardless of the age, even if these this is coming from five, six, seven-year-old uh, racists. It should be taken very seriously. And Gus, I think that um, the older kids in particular, like if you're in high school and someone's calling you a nigger, uh, it might be uh, logical for them to go to the office or to the principal and say that they suspect that someone might be, you know, a racist because they keep calling me a nigger. And um, see what the principal says and how they handle it if you approach it from that angle. Might be a good one, especially if you're older. That's why I said it, it would it would vary just depending on your child, your child's temperament. Some some children, they're a lot more outspoken and, you know, they are they are very confident, very comfortable talking more and that sort of thing. You have other children. They're a bit more reserved. They're a bit more quiet. They don't want to do all that. So we kind of depend on the temperament of your child as well. But I would certainly think if you have an older child, they're more comfortable. Uh, you could even suggest uh depending on their comfort level this sort of thing happens if they are comfortable they have their cell phone or whatever it is they could whip that out wow that sounds like the sort of thing a racist would say are you a racist you get back in the question lane are you a racist see what they say you can have your recording on now if they get quiet oh you don't you don't have anything else to say okay turn your recording off you can go back about your day uh, I, I would still uh, make a report of that uh, but you could do that there are a lot of different ways that you could go with it just depending on on your child the what is a nigger asking a question are you a racist another question you could ask because that sounds like the sort of thing that a racist would say are you a racist see what they say just ask a question I remember um, one time uh, Tajay had participated and stated that this little boy said he could say nigger because he was one-eighth of black or some foolishness. So then they use those kind of little things, too, as a defense mechanism if you say anything against it or to give them leeway in being able to use it freely. I was going to say, I think it's a good idea in that moment for them to ask the white person, are they a racist? Because in most, most situations when white people are in that kind of a state of mind, essentially they're, they're so emboldened by their uh, white power that they'll usually answer in a way that's affirmative simply because they're already feeling their, the top, you know, that white supremacist power in that moment of calling you that in the first place. So it'll be easier to get them to say something like that 
Whereas if you catch them in a different situation after the fact, let's say, they'll come out and, you know, I'm not a racist. But in that very moment where they call you a nigga, if you ask them, are they a racist, more than likely they might answer affirmative, or you'll be more likely to get that sort of an answer out of them. So that way, you know, even if you go to the principal, you can say, hey, this person told me they're a racist. You know, they called me a nigga. I asked them if they're racist. They said, yes, they were. You know, they don't like niggas or whatever the case may be. And that way they can move forward and it'll no longer be a suspected racist situation because they've admitted, you know, exactly what they are. So I think that's a really good idea. And, um, oh, I, I also wanted to touch base on that, um, that article that the, uh, one of the earlier polls read about Charlize Theron. And I just found that very disturbing, um, how she's, um, you know, basically indoctrinating him into anti-sexual behavior at such a young age. And I think she's a good example of what white people do with black children behind closed doors, the type of, um, license they take to, you know, teach them mentally and sexually disturbing things at a very early age. And um, it's almost like a, a black pet, you know, in her mind, it's, it, you know, she's, she's from South Africa. So I know her mentality is very, very um, racist just from that alone. And I know she comes from a background of um, violence, too, because I believe her father, like, killed her mother or some craziness um, when she was a child. So she's a disturbed person to begin with. And then, um, you know, now she's further traumatizing a young black child, a young black male. And um, I have a feeling he's probably going to end up being anti-sexual um, simply because she's making it seem okay. And this is all on public display for the whole world to see because she's an internationally known um, actress and no one's saying anything about this. So I find that to be very telling. And it just shows what white people are really capable of. They are just, you know, they're subhuman, they're sub-animal kind of beings that walk on two legs. And it's just um, disgusting and just very, very um, disturbing to hear about that. Thank you. The caller at 2295, 2295, did you have commentary you wanted to share? Yes, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I wanted to um, comment on the recording with the cell phone. Up to a couple weeks ago, I used to record, like, all the meetings that I was in at work because there is racism going on, but I need to document it. So whenever I'm in a meeting, I'll use the, like the voice memo app on the iPhone and then tuck the phone in my portfolio. But then I'm like, well, what if, you know, my boss calls me in a meeting and I don't need my portfolio and I don't want to keep carrying it around. So on Amazon, they do sell, USB thumb drives, but they're actually recording devices. So they're very small. Um, what I've done is that um, if I'm wearing a shirt with a pocket in it, you stick it in the pocket. I mean, it, it the sound is really good. And when you get home, you could go through, like, on um, the recordings. If you know at a certain point you recorded something that's noteworthy, um, I've been making notes like the time on the recording, what was said, who said it, and you would be amazed some of the things that you pick up at work. So, I mean, it's really inconspicuous. They sell them on Amazon. It looks like like a regular old thumb drive. So that was just another suggestion. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, I'm the caller from um, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, just picking up uh, where the last call I had left off. Um, they also do, I had posted it on my page not too long ago. It's like uh, these watches, or they look or appear like they're watches, when in fact they're like a type of recording device. So that would be something 
I know um, my dad at one point had ordered some recording um, devices that um, function as uh, pens, uh, fountain pens. And um, so, um, you know, they have all types of little gadgets and stuff like that. So, you know, even if you um, don't have your iPhone or your smartphone, you can, um, there's this various uh, devices that you can use that don't look obvious and stuff like that. Um, as far as the uh, parents in regards to, uh, yeah, I don't have any children, but I was just listening to some of the callers. Um, I would suggest as far as some of the parents who have um, children who are worried about uh, having to confront racist uh, little um, kids at school and stuff, I would also make sure, like, since it's at the beginning of the school year, um, get familiar with your school's code of conduct for the students or what we know in the workplace is your employee handbook. Um, look closely, I guess, at the, the wording or verbiage as far as um, when it comes to bullying, uh, harassment, um, you know, what is their interpretation as far as, you know, what is considered um, uh, hate speech or racist or discriminatory and stuff like that and kind of, you know, um, you know, I, I guess you can, uh, you know, break that down to your kids, you know, depending on what their level of understanding is. And as far as the Nate Parker um, issue, I wasn't initially going to go see the movie anyways because I'm just tired of all the slave movies because it seems like that seems to just be the overall reference point that we as a people have um, when it comes to all these movies coming out. So I had already said that I wasn't going to see it. Then when I found out that his wife was white, I was like, oh, I definitely don't want to see that now. So, and um, But this whole issue about um, his uh, his um, reported a case that had happened years back, you would think that that's something that, you know, even the people who are trying to slander him now, you know, as well as other news outlets, they would have brought it to any and everybody's attention. I don't think he went about hiding anything. But like the other caller had said um, not too long ago, I guess my concern as a black female is some uh, black females who consider themselves black feminists. Um, that term in itself is uh, problematic um, because um, I was speaking with someone um, earlier today and they had identified themselves as a black feminist. And she was talking about, you know, how she was against white supremacy and the patriarchal system and stuff. And I just asked her, well, do you not um, think that white women play a role in that system? And I, I, I would just uh, advise in regards to black males and black females, you know, paying attention more to the words and terms that white people use in describing our relationships to one another because it just seems like, 
we are trying to, the only reference point that we have in regards to us considering ourselves males and females is white men and white women. We don't have any other type of reference point. So we're trying to emulate what we've learned uh, from them to begin with. And I think that's where we, um, you know, go wrong at. So I think we just need to um, re-examine what it is to, um, what what it is to be a, um, a male or a, become a man, you know, manhood and womanhood all together. And, um, stop using white culture as a reference point. And that's all. Grand, grand. I feel like I heard somebody else say something similar to that about being very, very tired with all of the slave flicks. Hmm. Um, we have about uh, five minutes before we uh, get ready to wrap up. Thanks again to Mr. Reed for his assistance uh, with the tech issues. Hopefully we'll have all that taken care of before we are uh, back on the air. I did want to uh, make sure that I state again, um, and it's just, it's it's difficult. I'm glad the person that asked that question, it can be uh, challenging in terms of how you deal with it. Just one, if you're talking to your child about being called a nigger, depending on how old they are, uh, and even depending on the situation. Um, as I said, sometimes it can be a dangerous situation. Sometimes it's not a situation where you want to uh, pull out a recorder uh, or ask questions, you want to try to vacate the area as quick as possible because things can escalate. I'm even I reminded, even though this was a situation that was not involving children, that situation at the Chicago Margarita Festival uh, that happened just a few weeks ago where it escalated quickly uh, within, you know, a matter of minutes. Uh, it was violent. Uh, this white woman, she's, you know, assaulting this black male and spitting on people and everything. That's one of those where I think it would have been better just to exit because pulling out the device to record uh, that only, uh, you know, it added uh, it, it made her more proud to display her racist white supremacist tendencies. Uh, and She just became emboldened and more violent uh, with the recorder out uh, saying, you know, I don't care what you record. You know, I'm white. I have impunity. So uh, it can be uh, challenging. I would really try to, to make sure that they assess um, is this something where it's looking like it could be violent, where it looks like it could escalate? And to keep in mind that these things can escalate quick. It can go from something where they are just looking like they're joking around and being silly, and then all of a sudden it's violent uh, within, as I said, a matter of seconds. So I would really uh, make sure that whatever whatever code or strategy that you you know share with your children to emphasize, this is serious. This is not something that should be taken as a joke, and that frequently these things can get violent. Uh, that nigger is followed by some sort of violence or what have you against a black person to really make sure that they understand that regardless of, of which strategy uh, you share with your child. I'm glad you said that, Gus, because that is very important. In a controlled environment like school, you know, I would say, yeah, you know, ask questions. But I teach them in the streets. If, you know, you hear a white person acting racism, you know, acting racist or um, emboldened enough to be calling people niggas, you can get away as fast as possible. Um, I tell them to bounce, you know, get out of there. That's like seeing someone with a gun and something, you know, it's, that has the potential to become very deadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else folks want to make sure that they uh, get in last few minutes before uh, we wrap things up? 
know one thing that I am uh, glad we had a moment. That clip on the confessions of Nat Turner, we have talked about that before. That is massively important because they said they're reissuing the book. William Styron is a suspected racist. He also is a homosexual white male. There was lots of controversy when that book came out uh, in the 1960s. We talked about that before uh, in detail on the program. I'm not surprised at all the layers uh, of deviousness that they have uh, about this project. If they're going to use this as a means where I could even see them deciding to not show Mr. Parker's film, but they reissue William Styron's book uh, and say, well, this is definitive, you know, forget that, you know, no good nigger. This is the book that we all will study to get more about Nat Turner. And I think at the time, part of William Styron's past that I am cool, I am not racist was because he and James Baldwin were pals or buddies or whatever the case is. Uh, and so it was, hey, I can't be racist. I'm down with James Baldwin. And so that was part of his plan to deflect uh, criticism, suspicion uh, against him. But that, I mean, that's a discussion that has already been had. Lots of people already raised an issue with that being an act of racism. Uh, this uh, white man trying to control the narrative about what Nat Turner did, what he said, his quote unquote confessions, even it being presented there is this is the authentic record. This is his actual voice. This is as close to the real thing as you're going to get. Massive. Ma- I was even thinking about getting that uh, white person on the program. Um, yeah, there's much that could be said. That's like worthy of a whole program in terms of William Styron, the return of William Styron on uh, the confessions of Nat Turner and how we think about that event in uh, 1831 Virginia. Uh, 60 seconds. Anything else or folks content? I will assume folks are uh, satisfied. Thank you all for being patient with the tech issues. Thanks again to Mr. Reed for his assistance. Hopefully we'll have all that taken care of uh, by the next time we're on the broadcast. I've been trying. I have failed thus far to get Pastor Gaddy uh, on the program. He was mentioned when we had uh, Antoinette Harrell on the program, uh, I guess it was like two weeks ago, maybe not quite two weeks ago. We talked about the Dozier School in Florida, and she said that we should get him on the program. He was one of the victims uh, who was at the Dozier School, who was abused. He's talked openly about the sexual abuse that he experienced and just the horrors that went on uh, at this quote-unquote school. Um, And she said that he wrote a book, she co-wrote the book with him, where he talks more in detail about his experience, and we should get him on the program. I've been calling uh, since we had her as a guest on the broadcast, but I just kept getting voice messages and couldn't get through to him. Uh, So I asked her to see if she could help me out, and she got me uh, new contact information. So I'm going to try again to see if we can uh, nab him this weekend, and hopefully we can get him on the program uh, in the coming days. So stay tuned. We'll see if we can make that happen. I'll put the update on the Facebook page and Black Talk Radio Network so people will be aware. Uh, we can make that happen uh, pronto. Uh, if you have other uh, suggestions, problems, questions, feel free. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Certainly gripes and complaints as well. Until justice at gmail.com. Uh, I will make sure we get a response as soon as possible. You certainly can uh, message on the Facebook page as well. Uh, or social media, whatever you like. But guest suggestions in particular, uh, if you could send those to the email account, that would be super appreciated. It is much easier for me to organize and keep everything uh, filed at my Gmail account until justice at gmail.com for guest suggestions. Uh, with that, 
Uh, I will certainly encourage, I think we are a week away from the Labor Day weekend, as they call it, uh, but I would still encourage if you are going to go out and frolic for the end of summer or folks are about to go back to school or whatever, whatever you're doing as you wrap up the month of August, uh, stay codified. Uh, this should not be an excuse uh, to lax uh, on recognizing that a war is being waged against us at all times, in all places, each and every area of people activity. In particular, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, I have not seen any examples of where being under the influence, being intoxicated in any manner, where that helps us solve the problem of racism, white supremacy. In particular, if you're going to be in a vehicle, you do not want to be under the influence of anything. Uh, that's whether you are the driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian. You never know when you have the misfortune of bumping into Daniel Holtzclaw Darren Wilson, any other race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope it's been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening, and we will be back soon. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>